Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Trinity Rep. Celebrating 60 years with August Wilson's Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama returning to Trinity Rep's stage for the first time in 30 years. March 21st through April 28th. Tickets at trinityrep.com. And the trustees. You can ring in spring at Nomkeg in Stockbridge with the annual Daffodil and Tulip Festival. Colorful seasonal blooms April 19th through Mother's Day. Advanced tickets required. More at thetrustees.org slash spring. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, House Democrats have been all over the place on what they're trying to do when it comes to impeachment. Can't decide if they're impeaching the president, let alone where they are in the process. Maybe today they'll get some clarity with the House Judiciary Committee voting on a resolution defining the rules of the panel's investigation of the president. We'll get Meet the Press's Chuck Todd's take on this, tonight's debate, and on Antonio Brown. And who in the U.S. likes surprise medical bills? No one. So why is Congress in Beacon Hill so slow to pass legislation that curtail them? MIT economist John Gruber joins us for that. At noon, it's time for Law & Order with Andrea Cabral. So for the first time since Obamacare went into effect, the number of people without medical insurance is on the rise. We'll ask medical ethicist Art Kaplan if the president's obsession with dismantling Obamacare has something to do with this. All that is next on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Eastern Brody, I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. So if Trump's asylum ban was a loyalty test for the Supreme Court, they aced it. While the most conservative justices have minimized the power of the executive branch in previous decisions, yesterday they granted Trump his wish, making it virtually impossible for anyone to seek asylum at our border. Joining us on the line for his take on this, to preview tonight's main event, the Joe Biden-Elizabeth Warren matchup, and other headlines, Chuck Todd. Chuck's the moderator, Meet the Press. You can catch that Sunday mornings at 10.30 on NBC Boston. That's Channel 10 on most providers. Also, the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC and the political director for NBC News. Hello, Chuck Todd. Well, good morning. Hey, good morning, Chuck good Todd. Um, you know, before we get to um, uh, politics, well, I guess this is political, but I just wanted to ask you about mm -hmm. G what Jim just mentioned, uh, the Supreme yeah. Court making it uh, virtually impossible for people to seek asylum at the border. That coupled with the fact that earlier this week we had the president demanding documents from refugees uh, desperately fleeing the Bahamas after the hurricane, which is something that we've not done right. before. I don't mean to be overly dramatic here, but, you know, I— I think a lot of Americans, you know, love their country. And part of the reason they love their country is we have been kind of a beacon of light for the world. And this is this is a really, if you come from that perspective, these are two steps in the opposite direction, I think. Well, they certainly are, I think, philosophically sort of different than what we, what we've sort of at least rhetorically said who we are, no matter the party of the president, right? This is the first time any president has sort of made it clear um, we're not the same welcoming um, nation that we we used to be. I will say this about this court decision, and what the other thing that's a reminder of is that we have no, our entire immigration system is basically being run by executive fiat, right? President Obama did it that way. You could those that defend him say it was because Congress wouldn't act, um, but he did it that way. Trump is doing it that way because he can't prod Congress into acting. Um, he doesn't. You could make an argument that he could, but he has no 
he has no interest in, it seems like, in actually negotiating. So we're, we have an, an entire immigration system in this country just basically run by the whim of, a, of the chief executive, which means that the next president will then change it a, another way. I do hope at some point we can go, you know, how many decades are we going to go without fixing our immigration policy and, and, and continue to have this by presidents and court orders? It's ridiculous. You know, we history moves so quickly. We haven't. I mean, Bob Mueller, who who is he? (laughs) Uh, uh, The Democrats offering twenty five billion dollars in return for for the wall in return for a a, uh, an immigration deal. It is amazing how fast things move. Those all happen. Those all happen during. During this president, I know. <laughs> Just a few weeks ago, on the Bob Mueller. Yeah, it wasn't that long. It wasn't that long ago that that Bob Mueller chose to pull a Jim Mattis. I have to tell you, I think history is not going to be kind to Mueller or Mattis. You know, this this decision that they think their integrity is is so much superior to everybody else's that they need not express their opinion yeah because Amen. of their high integrity is just completely self serving. What well, it is is what they're basically telling you is that they're cowards. They're cowards, and they're hiding behind faux integrity. If they've got something to say, if they have seen something that is a clear and present threat to the republic, they have a duty. I, I, I just, I just find, I find this, you know, it, 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 it doesn't look good the longer you see it. That's all. No, listen, I'm with you. And McMaster, I'd throw in that, in that same bunch. I saw, I saw Madison in these interviews. I, I was bursting at the seams. Yeah. Hey, my money's on John They're Bolton. How about John about Bolton? On corporate boards. <laughs> They're more worried about getting on corporate boards. Is that what you think uh, it is? And being, seen, and being seen as neutral arbiters, right? They know they can't be seen as pro-Trump, and they don't want to be pro-Trump. But they also don't want to come across too publicly critical because they know that the corporate world desperately just wants people that can get access. And as long as they don't, these people that exit don't trash, they can come back into the White House. It's a, it's a, you know, I hate to be that cynical about it, but that's why you're seeing this muted criticism. So, Chuck Todd, uh, let me trash the Democrats for a while. I'm, I'm kind of confused by what their whole strategy is now on these impeachment hearings. Uh, You know, I know that Marjorie, if you weren't confused, (laughs) I'd have your head examined because it's designed to confuse. I would have been like, it would have scared me if you understood. Yeah. Because I don't. Nobody does. Well, I, I guess I'm sort of losing. I don't understand. I, I know it's Cy Vance, the, the district attorney in Manhattan, that's go, you know going after the hush payments to the two women that the president supposedly had affairs with. And I think to myself, why are we even talking about this now? We know he did this. It's it's like old news. Well, What's a state prosecution? The question is, is, why is Congress investigating it is, but, still? But, but they're still talking about that in Congress as well. I, I, maybe the I, – I just – and I'm also thinking we're having another debate tonight. Everybody's beginning to talk more about the election. We're getting close to the election. The, the Democrats that won from Trump district still don't want impeachment, understandably. The public doesn't seem to. So I, I mean, what are they doing? I, I just don't get it. Well, I look, I talked to a, I was talking to somebody pretty high up in leadership who admitted the following to me. He says, here's, here's our problem when it comes to Trump. We have a lot of good second articles of impeachment, meaning – the, you know, they just don't have a lead article. Yeah. You know, they don't have the lead narrative. You know, this is the, this has always been the, 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 uh, the trap in getting Trump, whether you were a New York prosecutor back in the 80s or you're a congressional committee investigator today. Trump is so brazen with the petty. 
So whether it's using Noah to back himself up on this ridiculous claim, it's a massive abuse of power. If he did it to enrich himself, game over, right? Case closed. He did it in order to fix his politi- the perception of his politics, which is dirty, which is seamy, which is wrong, but it doesn't feel like enough to throw somebody out of office, right? So, and I'm just using that as an example in that that's the Democrats' problem. They have a whole bunch of second articles of how this guy is just flouting the Constitution, the rules, but where they've caught him the most red-handed is on what people would say is, I don't know, yeah, that's wrong. Is it worth throwing them out for? And that's their problem. Now, they have a whole bunch of those, right? It's not like they just have one or two. They have a whole bunch of those. They don't have a lead narrative. And, and he admitted that's their problem. They had a lead article that felt like a larger narrative that was telling a story. They'd probably already be there. But by the way, speaking to your self-enrichment or non-self-enrichment, the emoluments thing, which I don't think riles people up that much, that's a no, self-enrichment. But that is a self-enrichment but thing, but is it not? that's a simple one. I don't know. Does, does that rile people up somewhat to think about how, many, how much taxpayers have spent uh, uh, lining the president's coffers? I mean, that's money – you know how much? No, but the central theme is the foreign government issue, and I don't. I don't think the people don't call our show enraged for the most part that uh, foreign hey, leaders way, are renting space. Are, at, yeah, go ahead. You know what my my my, my Democratic uh, leadership source would say? You guys are are showing the example of why this is so difficult. You know, you're like, no, get them for this. No, get them for this. No, this is bad. No, this is bad, and that's their problem. Yeah, it's all bad, but none of it is bad enough. You know, uh, speaking of bad enough, the gun crisis is bad enough. A hundred and some CEOs have apparently written and said, do something. Uh, is it Joe Manchin, I think, amongst the Democrats, who has apparently been talking to Trump off and on, more on, theoretically, than off? Yeah. Is something happening or nothing happening? Uh, no, it'll be a something, but it's not going to be a background check thing. I mean, what it's is pretty it? clear that it's going to be a red flag law um, at best is what they're is what appears to be what they're looking at, and it appears that's what you're going to get the president on. He's not going to do anything to expand background checks. I just don't know. I had this theory that had Democrats won that special this week, maybe that forces that more Republicans push, because it would have been a suburban voter issue, that more Senate Republicans push McConnell to say they want this vote, that they really need this vote on expanding background checks. I do think there is a filibuster-proof majority for background checks in the Senate. The problem is McConnell won't put it on the floor because he, does, he doesn't think the president will sign that. You know, but, it's like a main But Chuck, we weren't going to bring up North Carolina, but since you did, is while the average person may not be thinking much about it and saying, well, the Republican won, I assume people inside whose jobs are dependent upon votes are thinking about the fact that this was – you know, as we all memorized, Trump won by 12. Yeah. What did Bishop win by two or whatever it was? That doesn't yeah. and cause some fear in some Republican hearts? Yeah, but here's, here's the problem. And I could, I could make this case that let's say you're Bishop. And let's say you vote on expanded background checks. The only way Bishop can win is to rally rural America. Mm-hmm. And so they're sort of stuck in the strategy that they're in, which is why the president can't be for background checks. Basically, his own political team told him, if you sign this, you're not going to add a single supporter. Nobody who wants you to do this will vote for you because you did it, right? And Trump now knows this, and he's not wrong. By the way, that political analysis, I think, is very fair. I don't think there are many people out there. They couldn't make the case. They can't find the case that somehow if he signs this, all these suburban Republican women that have been fleeing 
this president due to his personal behavior are suddenly going to say, well, I don't like the guy, but, oh, he expanded background checks. That's going to bring me back. Yeah. And they basically, it doesn't. So if you're the president and you realize you can't do anything to disappoint that rural base, well, expanding background checks will not play well there. So I actually think they're sort of, they've put themselves in this political corner where the only path they have to win is this inside straight of maximizing rural turnout and ex-urban turnout and just, you know, hope for depressed democratic urban turnout. That's the only strategy I have left, which means don't mess with the guns. So, so uh, Chuck, we really want to talk to you about a local issue. So I will, in in a sort of a yeah. speed dating way. Right. Who else? Who who else is the, who else are the PAC signing? In order well, that's to- actually <laughs> what that's what we want to ask you about. But just to get it out of the way is a mandatory thing. How's do you have that it? Karma coming. How's do you have it? Karma? Wait a second. Ever heard of karma? By the way, we should say we're talking to a Miami kid. But my guess is I I agree with them. But before we get to that quickly, do you have any? insight on the debate that we have not heard 10,000 times from 10,000 people. That's right. Put you if, on the spot here, if Chuck. If not, we'll just move uh, on. I'll, I'll, give you, I'll, I'll give you my my, my, uh, my more controversial take. They haven't mattered. They that's haven't Mar- mattered. That's what Marjorie yeah, said they to me mattered. every day. It, it, they haven't mattered. Is it because there's 10 people and it's too early? Uh, that's my theory. That, that it's too many people. No, it's three hours. I, I have a, I, that would have been my theory. I might, I might have thought that. I, I think it's because there's no debate. The, the, the Democratic Party is basically split in two. And, and, you're, and, it, and, it, and it goes something like this. If you believe the 2016 election was stolen, you're a Biden person. And if you believe the 2016 election was won because the Democrats didn't offer diddly, you're basically in the Warren Sanders camp. Yeah. And there was a whole bunch of people That's... who thought there was some place in between Warren and Biden in this field. Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, all these people thought there was a lane in between. I think we found out there's no lane in between. You're either for restoration or for progressive disruption, period. And, and, and the idea of being for a less disruptive version of, of progressivism, a la Kamala Harris, or a less, or a less res- restoration, a more modest change version, you know, like, yeah, it, it just turned out, no, this is a sort of a simpler proposition for the for, for the electorate. Okay, so uh, you started already. Let me. You mentioned how uh, Madison, Mueller, people like that have a duty to speak the truth or answer questions or whatever it is. I'm not equating this, but if you wa- if you saw any of the press conferences yesterday, where the sports reporters in town finally act like real reporters with Bill Belichick and were not cowed, he refused to say anything about whether or not he or the Patriots knew about these rape allegations before they signed Antonio Brown. Tom Brady, I think fairly predictably, says uh, we're on the Miami. He didn't literally say that, but that kind of thing. I'm focused on the game. I have no opinion about the other thing. What do you make of uh, of the Patriots' decision to, one, sign the guy, and two, say virtually nothing after this uh, uh, this uh, this civil litigation is filed? Let me speak as a semi-informed fan, and I will say this, just as a fan, something smells about the Antonio Brown signing. The release, he he immediately wanted to be traded to New England from the get-go. Pittsburgh refused to do it. Pittsburgh trades him to Oakland. He figures out a way to get himself released, and within an hour, has a contract with New England. Okay, so I actually think there are a lot of... There are a lot of, of, of sort of NFL fans like myself and others who sort of are pay attention to this stuff, who think something's fishy here. And I think that, that there's, there's – so I want to – that's the business side of things. 
Now let's take a look at the cultural and, and what you're asking about with Antonio Brown and his personal business. I'm going to ask reverse the question. Put yourself in Roger Goodell's shoes. You've yet to punish Mr. Kraft for his Correct. For his arrest. Marjorie's been saying that every day, Chuck. And now you have this Antonio Brown situation. I, look, I, the NFL is not a public entity. It is a private club, which means they can decide who is fit to be a member of their club, i.e. an owner, who is fit to be a participant in their games, you know, things like that. So this is all on Roger Goodell. But I will say this. He's got a huge problem on his hands for his refusal to do anything about Robert Kraft. And I don't think he could do a lick about Antonio Brown until he does something about Robert Kraft. So, and you know what? I don't feel sorry um, for Goodell, you know, in this situation. He can sit here and get angry that New England put him in this situation. But his refusal to, to do anything about Kraft here has is, is created a, a bigger problem for the NFL. And I think that's where the story is about the head. Right now it's about Antonio Brown. But I'm sorry. How's it? Robert Kraft's situation, I think, uh, is going to be back front and center pretty soon. I wish you, you know, could Chuck see Marjorie Todd, nodding. I'm so glad you called because <laughs> I've been beside myself since the game on Sunday. Uh, I, I, I maybe thought that Robert Kraft, who's not apologized to those woman, women uh, in, in, in Jupiter, Florida. He apologized to his fans and his family, never apologized to those women who, whether it was sex trafficking, which people say it was not, um, and that the charges were dropped, but maybe he could have taken a little less prominent role in the opening of the Patriots' new season. And it doesn't seem to bother anybody that he didn't. And um, so I'm really glad that you called. You know, at what point, you know, that's the thing here. At what point, I understand that, hey, just win, baby. But at what point do you want to be a? Do you no longer want to be a pillar of your community? That's yeah. I'm just curious. I thought I thought when you owned an NFL team, when you owned a professional sports team, you're a member of the community. Um, you're not you're not there to profit. It is not. It is a, It's like owning a sculpture. There's only about 115 around that you can have in a sports team. You're supposed to. You know. You, you're you you have the honor of preserving. I. I I think sports owners are, are, do not view themselves that way enough, and, and instead they think they're just egomaniacs who have given the community a gift when they're just a custodian of the community's um, obsession over that sport. Thanks for making Marjorie's day, Chuck Todd. It's a good start to our show. <laughs> Thank you very Talk much. Talk to you next I week. I make Marjorie happy. Thank See you. you, later. you. You do quite often, Chuck. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. Thank you so See much. You, Chuck Todd joins us every week. He's the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 1030 on NBC Boston, Channel 10 on most providers. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC and the political director for NBC News. Chuck Todd, really great to talk to you. Up next, the next health care battle on Capitol Hill could be over surprise. Medical bills, why they're on the rise and how to avoid them is next with MIT economist John Gruber. Listen to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And we're already getting written comments on that last five minutes with Chuck Todd about the uh, Patriots mess. We're actually going to open the lines at the end of the final hour of today's show and let you guys weigh in on the uh, Antonio Brown situation. But first, a growing trend in healthcare is giving new meaning to the phrase adding insult to injury. Surprise medical bills is what they're called. It's what happens when, for example, a hospital uses doctors or even an ambulance company that's outside of our healthcare network. And the cost to you can be anywhere from $300 to thousands of dollars and beyond. The other surprising thing about surprise medical bills is there appears to be bipartisan support on the Hill to crack down on them. Here with us in, uh, and by, I mean Capitol Hill, but also there's legislation uh, being discussed on Beacon Hill. Here with us in Studio 3 to break down why this practice is on the rise and how special interest groups are trying to stop any kind of legislative reform is John Gruber. John is the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. He's an instrumental in creating both the Massachusetts Healthcare Reform and the Affordable Care Act. His latest book is Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. And in a couple of minutes after John talks to us, we're going to open the lines. If you've gotten surprise medical bills and want to share your story or have a question, uh, give us a buzz. If you have questions about them, even if you haven't gotten one, please give us a buzz at 877-301-8970. John Gruber, it's good to see you. Great to be here as always. Boy, I tell you. You read these stories and you think everything is a damn scam here, John. But anyway, um, Jim talked about uh, situations where people wind up with these surprise medical bills. But just elaborate on that. Tell us how this happens, that you wind up getting this shocker of a bill in the mail. Well, like many uh, bad outcomes, it happened through good intentions, and it's sort of it's an unintended consequence. So we all know today when we sign up for our employer plan, our private health insurance plan, we're dealing with a limited network. There's a set of doctors that are covered by your plan. And either you can't see other doctors in what's called an HMO, or you can see other doctors, but you have to pay more in what's called a PPO plan. And most of us are in plans like that today. That really started in the 1980s and now is virtually every plan. Um, the trick with that is so, – so when you choose whether to go, for example, your primary care doctor, you can go online and say, is my primary care doctor in network? And if I go, it's free, fine. But when you're unconscious and go to the ER and someone comes in as an anesthesiologist and checks on you and says, hey, he's good – no one's checking if that guy's in my network. If he's not, then I have to suddenly pay a lot more. If it's an HMO, I have to pay the entire cost. If it's a PPO, I might have to pay a 40% coinsurance instead of 20% coinsurance. So this is clearly a problematic situation. This is tricky because I believe and many people believe that there's benefits, been benefits of limited network plans in healthcare. We've discussed that before. I'm happy to discuss it again. The problem is it's had this unintended consequence I think it would be a mistake to throw the baby out with the bathwater to say, well, we should not have any limited networks, but we have to deal with this problem they've, they've raised. And, and by the way, it, it, obviously there's circumstances where at least going to an out-of-network person is unavoidable, like you said, an emergency or right. unconscious or whatever. But in the last 24 hours, I've been reading about situations where an average person would think they're fine. They voluntarily go, let's say, to an in-network hospital, and when they're in the in-network hospital, they're not told that there's an out-of-network medical provider. Often an anesthesiologist. Whatever it is, who is providing part of their care. So even if you try to be meticulous about sort of surveying your own scene, is there any obligation to disclose when you can that you are now entering the land of of out-of-network Service? No, there's none. And basically, 
this is the problem. This once again speaks to the problem with those who say, well, don't worry. Free markets can solve all our problems in healthcare. Free markets require to work require good information. We don't have that in healthcare. And the trade-off is going to be how do we create ways to control healthcare costs, recognizing the limited information individuals will have, a situation where you've been a good consumer, you've looked it up, you said Hospital X is in my network, I'm going to Hospital X, and then all of a sudden some guy comes in, you have no idea that they're out of network, and, and you get, have to pay a lot. That clearly is ridiculous and has to change. Well, I, you know, I, I got really enraged about this. And by the way, uh, we're, we are talking about this. If you've had these problems, you can call us at 877-301-8970. Uh, Liz Kowalczyk did this great piece in The Globe giving examples of people. There was this woman, uh, Cheryl Rydell, uh, who went for a cancer biopsy, uh, $6,000 cancer biopsy. And then several years later... An anesthesiologist and a nurse anesthetist billed her $2,600 for another procedure. It was the same kind of thing. It was an out-of-network deal. This happened to her when she had a colonoscopy, uh, and she got another bill from an anesthesiologist. And incredibly, this spokesperson for Emerson Hospital says that, well, we encourage patients before they need care to learn what is covered by their insurance plans. Are you kidding? I mean, people can barely figure out how to get to the parking lot, never mind how they're going to find out who's going to give them anesthesia when they're getting a colonoscopy or who's going to give them, uh, you know, the anesthesia for a cancer biopsy. What are you supposed to do, call the hospital and say who's going to be there at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning? You'd have to call the hospital and get the whole roster of who's going to be doing each thing to you. Clearly, it's impossible. Once again, that doesn't mean that we have to throw this all out and say anybody can see any doctor they want, which is what... You know, Bernie talks about in his plan. Uh, let's remember there have been enormous healthcare cost savings, savings which have benefited consumers from creating networks which can deliver more coordinated care and more cost effective care. The problem is it's gone too far. So the question is how do we continue to get those benefits? from these network plans while dealing with these exceptions that, that are more and more common. You know, I, I wanted to save uh, fixes for a few minutes from now, but since you mentioned one, in a second, I want to respond to what you just said. How widespread is this? How many patients end up getting a so-called surprise medical bill? What we don't know. We don't know. I mean, in some sense, unfortunately, as a scientist uh, or, or wannabe scientist, uh, uh, un- uh, unfortunately, uh, we don't have good comprehensive data on this. We have a lot of anecdotes. Sarah Cliff, at Vo- when she was at Vox, did an incredible uh, set of stories where she had people submit all their medical bills and talk about the crazy medical bills they were getting. But we don't really have systematic evidence uh, on this. W- w- we know it's a significant enough problem that it needs to be dealt with. Well, when you, uh, you said a, a second ago there are advantages. You said it a right. couple of times to a limited network, so right. we just don't want to just break down all barriers. But can't a credible, fair argument be made that, one, if you have no choice, like you're unconscious or there's an emergency, or, two, the provider fails to disclose that you are about to incur additional out-of-network costs, that at least in those circumstances you should pay no more than you would pay were you to go to an in-network provider? Because you really had no choice, or at least you had no informed choice. Well, okay, you made two statements there. One is, under what situations do we need to address this issue? And I totally agree. In fact, I'd expand on what you'd say. I would, I would pick up on what, on what Marjorie said. 
if you're unconscious or if you're going to some place that's in network, you shouldn't then have to, within that place, suddenly right. decide. Right. If a doctor comes and says, hi, I'm the guy who's going to save your life. By the way, I'm out of network. You're not going to say no. <laughs> okay? So basically, it should be it should be that basically if you're an emergent or you're going to some – there should be sort of a safe haven. If you say if you go to hospital, extra network. Now, but you then raise the second point, which is what is the fix? Well, that's where the fight is happening in Congress, which is and, – and at the state level, which is, OK, fine. We recognize this is a problem. So let's think about it. Let, let, let's think about the, the image. You go let, – let's think about sort of a, a number line. You go in and you're supposed to pay 100 and some guy comes in whose charge is 1000 Now, should you only have to pay 100 for that guy? Should you have to pay 500 Should there be an arbitration, which is what people are proposing, where the doctor argues his price and you argue your price – and they decide in between. So I think identifying where the problem is is easier than solving it. Uh, one solution is what Jim said, which is said, look, if you're unconscious or you are going to a sort of safe haven place, you pay your in-network rate and you're done. I think that that seems a pretty reasonable solution. And I, but I think that we have to recognize the reality that this is running into now, which is that doctors don't like fixing this. Doctors like getting their $1,000 and they are fighting back. And we don't want let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We don't want to say, okay, we have an answer. Doctors can't collect anymore if people are unconscious or under these circumstances. Doctors are going to kill the bill. So we have to ask ourselves what sort of compromises are we willing to make, the same conversation we always have about health care, for a politically realistic solution that can get doctors on board but also be fair to patients. We're talking with Jonathan Gruen from MIT about surprise medical bills. We're going to be taking your calls and emails, 877-301-8970 or BPR at WGBH.org. Jonathan, one of the things I've read is that there's been this change in the last 10 years or so in medicine where more of uh, investors have bought these so-called uh, insurance uh, uh, doctor staffing companies. And so what that means uh, is that they are also fighting against these medical bill deals because they're making tons of money uh, uh on these doctors coming in from out of network to go to different hospitals. So I guess I'm surprised that's even allowed. Look, we're, we're the only country— and Explain what they are, by, yeah. by the way. Okay. So, so basically the idea is the idea of our old model, the doc, which is sort of one crusty guy in his office, and you go see him, and he gives you a tongue depressor and gives you a piece of candy, and you leave. That's obviously gone. Now, increasingly, doctors are in large practices, and what started to happen is those large practices are actually being owned by investment companies, essentially. Essentially, third parties are coming in and saying to the doctors, look, you've got a practice. Uh, You don't want to run it. You don't want to organize. You just want to deliver care. We'll do all that, and we'll pay you a salary, okay? But in the meantime, they collect all the reimbursement, and they get the benefit on top. So basically – for the doctors, they're happy because they get a salary. They don't have to deal with all their crap that they didn't go to medical school to learn about. But these investment companies are making a lot of money uh, on the margin on these reimbursement rates, which can often be quite high. And so that leads to a new third party that's invested in trying to stop efficiencies. Look, in general, we have a huge – we can talk about this another time. We have a huge problem in the U.S. You know, people say the for-profit motive is the problem in healthcare in the U.S. Lots of countries have for-profit providers. Most European countries, when you go get private care outside the system, it's for-profit. Doctors do it to make their own money. The difference is in the U.S. is these layers of middlemen we've introduced, be it, be it investors that own doctors' practices, purchasing agencies between hospitals and the products they purchase, PBMs between insurers and drug companies. This is totally unique to America. 
all these layers of middlemen, and those layers of middlemen are creaming money off the top, and they're fighting change. I have one last thing before we get to the calls, and then we'll talk about the prospects. Allegedly, there's bipartisan support. We read this morning, and I think it was a Globe editorial, only nine states have passed legislation uh, limiting this in some fashion, protecting the consumer. Massachusetts, by the way, is not one of them, and there is legislation pending on beginning. Before we get to the calls— It's been pending for a year at least, right? Uh, I believe in Massachusetts yes. you're talking about. I, 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 what happens now, before we discuss long-term fixes and take people's calls, if you get a $27,000 bill now, other than calling Sean Murphy at the Globe <laughs> and whatever that column is called, fine print or whatever it is, what do you – better call Sean, as our yeah, better call Sean. just said in my ear. What do you do? Uh, so basically, I think there's a couple things you can do for your listeners. There are a number of uh, essentially charitable or quasi-charitable organizations which help people with their medical debt, with their unpaid medical bills. And you can find these on the web. Now, you have to be careful and make sure it's, it's a legit one. Unfortunately, I don't know the names of the, of the legit ones versus potential scams. But there are organizations. Don't panic and feel like, oh, my God. That will help pay you down? That, that, that will help you pay it down. How about organizations that help you negotiate a fair Th- price? There are, also, there are also organizations which will help you actually fight uh, the charge. Um, and once again, unfortunately, I don't remember the names. But, but, but these types of organizations do exist okay. that will help you fight back and help you negotiate it down. Uh, so don't feel like, I got this bill. I have to pay it. Uh, there are organizations which can help you push back. Let's go to Taylor. But- just one thing. Taylor, one second. Some of these people are talking about calling the attorney general's office to complain about this. But it seems as though the attorney general is limited in what she can do because it's legal. No, but no, but there are a lot of cases where something is legal but unfair. Right. Where the attorney, we've had, she's taken a million calls here, where they'll attempt to negotiate some yeah, sort, well, they, even if the law is not on their individual person, the Globe features, the one that got the anesthesiologist bills right. for, you know, for colonoscopy and a biopsy and stuff, and she fought and fought and fought, and she got reimbursed. But I, I guess that's the thing. You are at a disadvantage because technically they're not doing anything that's illegal. I mean, it, it, it is, it is absolutely, it's not illegal. The, yeah. There's no illegality here. It's, it's unfair. And I think what we need really is we need a deadline by which we need we need to say to the legislature, you need to have this fixed out, figured out by X. And if you stay up all night the night before X, fine. But it's got to be figured out. We can't continue with the situation. They're going to do it right after they do guns. OK, yeah. Taylor, Taylor in Nashua, New Hampshire, you're first with John Gruber on Boston Public Radio. Thanks so much for calling. Hi. Taylor. I worked for a physician's billing company uh, for a few months. Uh-huh. And I have a couple points. Uh, firstly, you, know, you don't have any numbers for how prevalent this is. Um, I took calls from Oregon, Washington, Texas, Florida, Ohio, Massachusetts, everywhere around the country. Um, we would typically do about 500 to 1,500 on a high end of calls a day. I would say somewhere between 20, 25% of calls were people calling saying, hi, I, I went to a hospital. It was in network, but I've got this bill. I want to say, well, why do I have two different bills? What is this? I have to explain to them. Yes. So you went to a hospital which employ or which subcontracts doctors. So, uh, you've received a hospital facility bill, but this here is the physician's bill. It's different. It looks as though your physician was out of network, even though the hospital was in network. As you can imagine, that's a very fun call to take. Um, those bills would be anywhere between yeah. 400 to $2,000 when they would be after insurance, either make a payment or if they're out of network, the insurance would make a smaller payment. Um, I would have to advise them to call back their insurance and have their insurance reprocessed at a hundred percent out of network. Um, and, um, there are a couple of points I want to make. Um, firstly, that the 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 prevalence and the, the how how ubiquitous this is is 
it, the administrative costs are so much higher. Um, the turnover rate uh, at our place was was massive. I'm sure at insurance they had you know the amount of time it takes to deal with this sort of issue causes so much more administrative costs, which makes the whole health, healthcare system more expensive. Um, there's so many different systems and so many different insurance and so many different contracts that people can be on or off. Um, <laughs> that one system would reduce so much administrative costs. Um, Goodness, there was another point I wanted to make. That's but, okay. That, that's a yeah. good one to take to John Gruber. Thank it, John? you very much yeah, for the call, I, Thank Taylor. you very much, look, look, this is, you know, what's ironic is that all the people making all the profits of the healthcare system are just politically pushing us towards wanting single payer, right? I, I mean, it's something well, you talk about. it does. About this. It, it does. It does. I mean, look, once again, single payer solves this. None of this goes on. Uh, the problem is that if you can see any doctor you want, then you could have doctors who are more expensive and don't deliver any better care who you can go see, and that can raise the costs. I mean these limited – once again, l- let me step back because it's important to remember what life was like before these limited network plans, which is before these limited network plans, you had providers who were no better or actually worse, Okay, charging many, many multiples of other providers, and you could go wherever you wanted, and that raised all our insurance bills. Healthcare costs – since Obamacare passed, have grown at the slowest rate in U.S. measured history. And a large part of that has been the growth of limited network plans, has been insurers saying, wait a second, these doctors aren't worth it. You can't go to them. So there is benefits to this. The problem is that in some sense, the the, the greed of the doctors and of these private equity companies is going to shoot themselves in the foot because this really is a pretty fixable problem. And it's not – it may be big, but it's not overwhelming compared to the size of the health system. So why don't you do it in the Affordable Care Act? Uh, Honestly, we didn't foresee it. Well, you mentioned in – and you don't mention – one of the reporters mentions – talk about price gouging, that national data shows that the surprise charges from anesthesiologists are frequently at 580% of the Medicare rate, for radiologists about 450% higher, and for emergency physicians about 400% higher. So they're gouging. Right? But, but, but to deal with this, once again, this is not a pro-con single payer, but we don't need single payer. So, for example, what Maryland has is an all-payer rate-setting system for their hospitals, which says that for the hospital part of the bill, okay, you pay the same wherever you go, whatever your insurer is. The hospital sets one rate. Everybody pays that. You could think about similar regulations for specialists who treat in hospitals. You could say there's one price. That would then get around uh, uh, these sets of issues, but that's a much bigger fight. The question is, this is, a, this is a problem which is manageable. Can we deal with this problem without blowing the whole thing up? By the way, we have an anesthesiology resident on the phone. Don't hang up, Richard. We're going to get to you in a minute. Jeanette in a car. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi, Jeanette. Hi, you guys. Hi. Love, love you. Thanks. Uh, just a quick one. I passed out at my neighbor's. Oh. I live to tell about it. Yes, it was scary. Everybody freaked out. I'm unconscious. They call 911. I got all the treatment I needed. The ambulance bill considered out of network, okay? The ambulance bill was $4,500. Oh, my, in- my Yes. God. My insurance company hung me out to dry. I had to pay my full deductible, which was $2,700, and it was an eight-mile ambulance ride. And it was it just blew my mind that while I'm unconscious, I get charged out of network rates. Who's your insurance company, Jeanette? You want to know? Yeah, We're I do. HMO, HMO Blue, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield. 
Yeah. So, John, don't go away, Jeanette. That's the same one I got. Yeah. Stick around for a second. Uh, so what's your reaction to that, John? My reaction is Jeanette has raised a critical issue we haven't talked about yet, which is the ambulance scam in many cases. I mean, basically, ambulances are a huge source of spending in the system. Um, you know, Jeanette's case, at least she needed an ambulance. Other times, ambulances will take people who's not even an emergent emerge drive and charge them a fortune. Who regulates those fees? No one regulates the fees. I mean, basically, Medicare reimburses if you're on Medicare. If you're in private insurance, the private insurer negotiates with the ambulance company. Mm -hmm. But basically, this is a huge issue in our system is that basically, uh, once again, you don't have any control over the ambulance. You also don't have control where the ambulance takes you. There's another issue about sort of where ambulance is taking people and how is that whole system regulated. So I think ambulance is a whole separate issue, but it is an important part of the surprise billing situation. Jeanette, are you okay, by the way? I am. Thank you. Great. We're glad to hear it. Thanks Boy, for Jeanette. the call. That is horrifying. Makes me a little yeah. nervous about my yeah. HMO Blue. Yeah. Richard, I uh, well, HMO okay, Blue we don't great. bash them repeatedly. I mean, we, <laughs> yeah. she made the point. Richard in Dorchester, you're next. You're the anesthesiology resident I mentioned. Uh, take it away. Thanks for taking my call, Jim and Marjorie. Sure. Jim, I actually met you after the show on Tuesday, so nice, nice to talk oh, to you. Oh, Richard, again. I remember you. Of course I do. You're the Philly <laughs> so, yeah, guy, right? That is true. Yes, great, sir. great to talk to you. You're on with John Gruber. Great. Thanks for taking my call. So, yeah, so I'm an anesthesia resident at, uh, you know, one of the local hospitals. And you guys mentioned the surprise anesthesia bills a couple times. I think it's, you know, there are a couple things that I think go into this. You know, number one, the hospital that I work at, the anesthesia providers, residents, nurse anesthetists, we're all employed by the hospital or some sort of subset, subset of a physician group for the hospital that, you know, makes us in-network kind of by default. Um, there's some other hospitals around town that I know where the anesthesia providers are employed by a private practice group. And that private practice group may or may not be necessarily in network depending on the type of insurance that you have. Um, and I think number two to add to that is, you know, the anesthesia providers, particularly in outpatient cases, Marjorie, you mentioned, you know, colonoscopies or yep. outpatient procedures. Yep. Um, we're, we're meeting patients for the very first time on the day of their procedure you know, surgeons, proceduralists, et cetera, they have the advantage of prior authorizations, getting the procedures and whatnot approved by insurance before the, before the procedure actually takes place. In many circumstances, particularly in the outpatient world, um, we, we don't have that luxury. Um, and I think that that probably contributes to these surprise bills that you're seeing from anesthesia providers. Richard, What's your which, Richard, which hospital are you at? I'm at Mass General. Mass General. Okay, so I should go to Mass General, I guess. <laughs> uh, John. Well, well, but th this I'm is fascinating. Well, but this is fascinating. R R Richard makes a great point. Um, but in some sense, we don't need to necessarily regulate whether anesthesiists are are employed by the hospital or not employed by the hospital. We just need to have a system where we say to the hospital, look, you're going to have to charge people the same thing whether or not the guy's employed by the hospital or not employed by the hospital. If you want to do – we shouldn't tell the hospital what to do, mm -hmm. but we shouldn't let those charges be differential. But look, I mean, you know, coming to Richard's point, for many, many things, okay – Honestly, MGH is no better than your community hospital and charges three times as much. So this is where the network piece comes in, which is if anybody can go anywhere, we're all going MGH. Because what the heck it is, it's got the name and something bad. I mean, that's where Big Poppy went. Something's bad with us. You know, <laughs> that's right. Despite the fact that, that, that Bez Israel is the official hospital of the Red Sox, he still went to MGH. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, 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 so basically – As John Gruber is wearing a 2018 World Series championship <laughs> Red Sox T-shirt, I should say. Wait till last year. Uh, so, so basically um, we have a situation where 
that MGH is great and that they're employing those anesthesiologists, so you won't get the surprise bill. On the other hand, the unsurprised bill for MGH will be much more than it will be at other hospitals. So this is the trade-off we have to think about. Richard, thanks for the call. It was great to meet you the other day. Thanks so much. We're talking to MIT economist Jonathan Gruber about surprise medical bills, and we're going to keep taking your calls, 877-301-8970, until the top of the hour, or BPR at WGBH.org. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley and Mardrigan. We're talking to Jonathan Gruber, uh, involved in the creation of Massachusetts healthcare reform and the Affordable Care Act on the federal level. And we're talking about surprise medical bills. And not only are lines exploding, but we have a lot of uh, stuff coming in on email or Twitter from Jeff John. It's impossible for patients to find out costs prior to visits. How do you compare two or more providers' costs? Uh, the answer is, in, in theory, your insurer has a tool online. All insurers were mandated by, uh, as about six or seven years ago, there was a law which mandated all insurers have a tool available that you can go on to compare provider toss, costs. In practice, no one uses it because it's confusing and, and often wrong. Uh, the answer is it's, it's, it's hard to compare. Uh, I think that um, what – I think when it's services like an MRI, it's worth trying to shop because, in fact – uh, you know, an MRI at a, at a Shields is much, much cheaper than MRI at a hospital. So in that sense, it's, and, and that's a sort of a commodifiable thing. It's easy to, it's relatively easy to shop. If you're going for your knee replacement, I don't know how you shop, honestly. It's just too hard to figure that out. Len in the car, you're next on Boston Public Radio with Jonathan Gruber. Hey, Len. Hey. Hi. Oops. We Did lost, you disappear? We lost how do you deal? Oh. Oh, you're there. Go ahead. Len? I think we have a bad connection. We're going to put my family. We're, you're in and out, unfortunately, Len. Yeah. We'll put you on hold. We'll come right back to you. Dan in Cambridge. Hi. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you. Um, so just speaking of uh, hidden costs, here's sort of a little vignette. The uh, pediatrician practice that we take our daughter to is physically located inside of a hospital. It's not necessarily associated with the hospital. They just rent space. That's where the practice is. Every time we take her in for Almost any procedure or any visit at all, including vaccinations, checkups, that sort of thing, inevitably we get a bill from the hospital because it is considered a hospital visit, regardless of the fact that hospital services were not utilized. Nothing of that nature was done. It just doesn't matter because they are physically in a hospital. My wife has spent hours on the phone with both the the billing service for the physician as well as the insurance company, everybody agrees that this is incorrect, and yet they just say, sorry, that's the way it is. Dan, what hospital? This is uh, Cambridge Hospital. Cambridge Hospital. Gee, city city councilor, maybe you can do something over there. I'm former city councilor. Thank you. How about it? Uh, I think that basically what this speaks to is that the need and, and, and the benefit for a place like Boston, which has such dense medical providers, of things called accountable care organizations. What an accountable care organization would be would be literally your insurer would pay a flat amount to a set of providers, and they deliver all your care, and they wouldn't be worried if the doctors at the hospital. There'd be a set of providers. You'd have a fixed copay for your, for your service or fixed coinsurance for your service, and we need to once again take a step towards more coordinated payment against, across providers uh, so that you don't pay different things at different sites of care like, like the caller runs into. 
But we also need, quite frankly, all these calls speak to we need more regulation of healthcare spending. Well, Once again, it doesn't mean all the way to single payer necessarily, but we need government to step in and regulate more what's being charged for these services. We're getting a lot of emails from people saying this is one big, long advertisement for single payer, that Medicare for all is the way to go. Why are they wrong? Uh, Well, once again, it is an advantage of single payer. We've discussed single payer a lot. There are, once again, some disadvantages that come with single payer. You know, are all those callers willing to give up their private health insurance for an unknown new government health insurance plan? Assuming that that's the version of Medicare for all that ultimately ends up. You know, are all of them willing to pay the taxes that are involved in financing But look at what they're paying now already in their private health insurance. Absolutely. I mean, this person just emailed about somebody with their kid in the ICU up in Maine. They get a $5,000 bill in addition to the deductibles and coinsurance. If you don't have any money... That's huge. That, that, that is that is absolutely huge, and there's no doubt that there's huge benefits to single payer. Right. Okay. Uh, along all the, uh, you're right. This whole conversation is a big advertisement for single payer. The 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 issue with single payer, as we said all along, is the political challenges, and that basically, you know, when you ask people do you want single payer, they say yes. When you ask people, are you willing to give up your private health insurance for single payer? They say no. So basically, when you ask people who want single payer, they say yes. When you ask people, will they pay higher taxes for single payer? They say no. Well, but but in all fairness, though, as you know, higher taxes, and again, this is the burden on a candidate to explain this, higher taxes and disappearing premiums and co-pays. But the average voter has got to be convinced, as Marjorie and I have been debated ad nauseum, that there'll be an offset there, that essentially the average, that the tax burden will not exceed that which you were paying the, the, before. And, 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 it, and it large – and for many, many voters, it won't. And in some sense, I think what single-payer – the key thing whether single-payer is going to get through is the people who are advocating for it have to get to the voter in their mind the, con- the concept that the taxes are offsetting savings that you're going to get uh, – through lower employer premiums and lower deductibles. They have to convince people that. I if agree. they don't, it's not going to happen. Because what we're basically talking about is you're already paying a ton for your private insurance yeah. now. Then if you need an ambulance, there's another 5000 If your kid needs an ambulance, there's another 5000 And if you go to the wrong hospital and get the wrong anesthesiologist, you're up to like ten grand in addition to what you're already spending for your health insurance. So it does seem as though... And you're missing the biggest part, Marjorie. What? You're, 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 missing, the, you're missing the biggest part, which is... The part that your employer pays on your behalf, which will result in a raise for you if he gets rid of it. So there's, you know, once again, I did the study in Vermont, which in Vermont, should result in the raise for you. I it mean, that's one of the raise for you. Of the, uh, yeah. again, yeah. of legislation. Well, we did this study in Vermont. Two facts. One was overall healthcare spending in Vermont would have fallen by at least ten percent. On the other hand, they would have had to more than double the entire tax base of the state yeah. of Vermont. So, can you convince voters? Hey, it's going to be worth it because you're going to get more savings on the one hand. That's going to be the challenge that advocates or single payer are going to face. We can squeeze. Lisa, you have a minute from Situate. That's all we have, unfortunately. We have to continue this someday. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thank you uh, sure. for taking my call. I, uh, every six months, I have to go in for infusions. Um, and I've had two different insurance companies uh, during the time where I've been getting started getting my infusions. Uh, the first insurance company said, oh, we cover this in full. But yet I would get a bill for about $3,500. So then I uh, was able to sign up for a copay from the drug, the infusion, um, the actual drug, as a drug copay. And um, through that, through the drug copay, they um, incurred the rest of the, they took on the rest of the the cost. So now I've had to switch insurance companies because my employer did. And this insurance company, again, said, We'll pay it in full, 
and yet they don't. I got in a bill for $1,100, which is a smaller bill, but now the copay, uh, the drug company will not pay for it because it doesn't say right on the bill that it's actually for the drug. It's for everything else that goes along with getting the infusion. Can you imagine having to deal with this every single no, day? I, 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 no, Lisa, I'm Lisa, sorry for so that. Lisa, so Yeah. And I'm sorry for the guy that his wife got a mammogram. Then he got three different bills from people saying they needed. They were bills for interpreting the mammogram. By the he way, got, the guy that who we had a bad connection with uh, when he spoke to the uh, uh, our colleague. Yeah. He, uh, a friend of a family member, was injured, taken to a trauma center, two hundred thousand dollar bill, and unfortunately <gasps> we didn't get to talk to him. Two hundred thousand. I repeat, two hundred thousand dollar bill. Hey, John, as always, okay. you uh, started a great discussion, and we've got to continue it. Thanks so much for your time. We Sounds appreciate great. it. John Gruber, thank you. That was fantastic. John Gruber uh, is the ar- architect of the Affordable Care Act and the Massachusetts Health Care Reform Bill. He also, his latest book is Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. Uh, thank you very much, um, Jonathan. Coming up. Kamala Harris has unveiled a sweeping new criminal justice reform plan just in time for tonight's debate. Andrew Cabral is going to talk about that and more next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, Kamala Harris was a tough-on-crime prosecutor. Does her criminal justice reform plan seek to reverse the criminal justice problems she helped to create? On today's edition of Law & Order, we'll ask Andrew Cabral about this, the state's highest court siding with DA Rachel Rollins on the straight pie parade spat and other headlines. And will the vaping industry go up in smoke? Medical ethicist Art Kaplan joins us to talk about how the Trump administration and the FDA are both cracking down on e Plus, we'll get his take on Purdue Pharma tentatively settling thousands of opioid cases. New Yorker writer Malcolm Gladwell joins us to talk about his new book, Talking to Strangers. It breaks down how we misread people, mistake people's intentions, and how, as a society, we have a failure to communicate and why all that matters. Then we ask you, what exactly is the Patriot Way? Is it sidestepping the disturbing allegations about alleged rapist in the name of great football? That's next on Boston Public Radio. Houston Brady, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to hour number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WTBH Logan Jim. I don't know why you're laughing, but I'm sure it's something I did, but I'm not going to ask. Here with us <laughs> in Studio 3 for another edition of Law & Order is former Suffolk County Sheriff, former Secretary of Public Safety for the State, Andrea Cabral. She's the CEO now of Ascend. Andrea, nice to see you again. Good to be here, as always. So, Andrea Cabral, there's so many things to be upset about in September 2019, but this is a wonderful thing. I think that the Supreme Judicial Court basically handed a huge victory to Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins. Tell us about it. Well, what happened was the, as a result of the, uh, as everybody knows, there was this uh, ridiculous uh, straight pride parade, and there were a number of uh, protesters um, that showed up at the parade, and there were uh, a, a several, more than several, arrests uh, of protesters, and they were arraigned in the, I believe it was in the Boston Municipal Court. Was, yeah. And um, there were several cases that the DA filed a null process on, a null process, a, um, a mechanism whereby the prosecutor, in their exclusive discretion, can say whether or not they wish to go forward with a case. And of the three null process that were filed, um, uh, the judge uh, 
allowed, well, it's not even a question of allowing, but two uh, were effective. And the third one, the judge refused to acknowledge. And quite frankly, that's just not, you can't do that. The judge has no authority to deny a prosecutor's discretion in as to whether or not they will go forward with a case pre-arraignment. Or re- actually at any point. You can file a no process on a case at any point, but certainly at pre-arraignment. And the judge insisted on arraigning the defendant. And so the district attorney um, appealed. It's called a, a 211.3. Chapter, it's under Chapter 211, uh, Section 3 of the Mass General Laws, appealed to the single justice of the Supreme Judicial Court. And of course, the the SJC um, uh, agreed with the prosecutor because it is it is an extraordinarily well settled law that if the DA files a null pros, they have the discretion to make that decision, and that the within the separation of powers between the executive branch and the judicial branch, the judicial branch has no authority to usurp that. Rachel Rollins was with me the other night in Greater Boston. I asked her about how she felt about the judge's uh, behavior, for lack of a better expression. Here's what she said: I don't know what he. Uh, why he did what he did, but I think um, it is very clear that he did not have the power to do so. So um, this is, he's worked in this office. He's worked in the Suffolk County Mm -hmm. DA's office. And, you know, I just think there are people that have problems with what it is I'm proposing, but this was not the appropriate forum or act in order to challenge that. You know, there were a couple of things that were really troubling about what happened in the courtroom, some of which we've touched upon. Uh, what Rachel Rollins says at the end there, uh, uh, there are uh, people that have problems with what uh, it is I'm proposing, this is not the appropriate forum. Every single person I've spoken to, including a former prosecutor who actually thinks Judge Sinnott in this case did have the power, even though obviously the single justice, the SJC, rejected it. Every single one said the judge was not ruling on the cases before him. He was ruling on her crim- approach to criminal justice. He doesn't, I mean, as William Barr called people like her and like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, quote, social justice reformers, anti-law enforcement DAs, 80% of the people or whatever it was in Suffolk County said this is the direction we want Suffolk County criminal justice to go in, and whether it's D.A. O'Keefe from the Cape, judges like Judge Sinnott have decided to take it in their own hands to use whatever forum they have to try to thwart the will of the voters. That's number one. And then number two, I want to get back to number one, the, the detention of Susan Church, one of the defense lawyers, who was not only holding, held in contempt for reading the law to the judge, but is then put in handcuffs and detained for three hours is unconscionable. So when we go back to the first thing, you buy the notion that seems where there seems to be virtual unanimity, except from the judge himself, this is about where she stands on criminal justice policy, not about these cases. Oh, sure, because the law is clear. I mean, there's not, there is no legal basis um, on which any judge could make, the, make a credible argument that uh, he or she had the ability to deny uh, the filing of a null process and to proceed with an arraignment against the wishes of a prosecutor. So there, so I think she's right. There has to be another reason. And I think that there is significant pushback to the way that um, she is approaching her office. And for me, it boils down to um, uh, privilege and power and the idea that, you know, uh, you know, power is never shared. It usually has to be taken. Uh, and so this idea that, you know, we're, we don't accept it, and so we're going to refer to you as too progressive or a social justice warrior. DAs for years and years and years have had chronic 
issues with with over-prosecution, with over-policing, all of those things that DAs actually sh- could, level the, could have leveled the playing field on many, 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 many years ago or more effectively. Um, and so now what you're seeing is we have decided what your role should be as the DA, and if to the extent that you don't hew to that, um, there may be pushback from various various other aspects of the criminal justice system. Well, I can't help thinking, too, you were the first woman sheriff of Suffolk County, the first woman of color as well. She's the first uh, woman of color to be the district attorney of Suffolk County. First woman, too, isn't she? Uh, First woman and first... I'm pretty sure first Yeah, Elizabeth Keeley was in acting uh, uh, when uh, Ralph Ralph Martin Martin, uh, was, uh, I think, biracial or African-American. I'm not sure what he was. What was Ralph Martin? What do you mean? He is black. He is black. Yeah, I wasn't sure. (laughs) I I know He wasn't before. I know. Did he die? I knew. (laughs) No, he still is. Yeah. I know he's a man of color. I wasn't sure what he was. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) the part of this, I can't help thinking, is... is, uh, She's a woman, and she's also a woman of color. I, I can't help that there's a little smidgen of this going on, too. I'm sure that it is all of those things. It is. It is. I think that there would be pushback regardless of her race, and there is probably a heightened pushback uh, because of her race. It, it is undeniable that all of those things play a role in the criminal justice system. The way that the criminal justice system functions and works, the disparity in, in treatment in arrests, in prosecutions, in convictions, in the length of sentencing between uh, uh, black and brown people and white people in the system is one of the most well-documented things we have nationally and even on a statewide level. Yeah. To suggest that neither that, th- that those things, neither her gender nor her race, play a role in how people are responding to this is, is literally to go against the evidence. I want to say one more thing uh, about this. There, you know, Every time anybody ever wins an election, I'm sure you did it too, uh, you, uh, the, the elected official claims a mandate, and often the public has no idea other <laughs> right. than they were a D or an R. There is no doubt in this race that the vast majority of people who voted for Rachel Rollins, whether you support her positions or not, knew exactly where she was going on criminal justice. It was really high profile. Uh, because it was considered radical by a lot of people, thanks to the great campaign, what a difference a DA makes by the ACLU, the profile, a lot of the DA's races was... So it isn't one of those things, well, the people didn't know they were voting for this. They didn't know they were voting for right. that. They knew exactly what they're voting for, and they're entitled to get it. And the trend was very clear, because Mass Inc. had done, uh, and this was while I was uh, Secretary of Public Safety, Mass Inc. had done a study almost, I guess, 20 years to the day on the criminal justice system and how people felt about it. So 20 years prior, this would have been in in 2014 or 2015, the the trend, and if you had a mandate, the mandate was build more prisons, prosecute more people, people were more afraid. In the 20 years hence, people had come to realize with the uh, heightened publicity around the way people are prosecuted, the length of sentence, and so on and so forth, all of that changed in public opinion, and the data was really clear that what where people wanted the criminal justice to go was less imprisonment, mm-hmm. no mass incarceration, stop building new prisons, and also uh, focus on rehabilitation and reentry. So it is not surprising at all that, in, that a few years later, uh, Rachel Rollins is elected. But one last thing about this, I'm sorry to belabor it, but I think it's a really important case. 
People may be asking, well, if in these cases the the DA has the power to unilaterally, the power is absolute to withdraw this thing, why'd she even bother going before the judge? This is the beauty of this, because Rachel Rollins is not, I don't want to speak for her, but I've spoken to her a lot, is not against uh, consequences for behavior. She just doesn't think going to jail has to be a consequence in all circumstances. The reason she went before the judge is because the DA, and you'll confirm this for me, doesn't have the power to unilaterally, if they're dismissing a case, to mandate community service. In these couple of cases, she wanted community service for the individuals where she was dropping the case, dismissing the charges, and that's what required her to go before the judge, but that did not give him the power to reject her dismissal of the charges. That is correct, right? That is, it's partially correct. What's she wrong? wanted, she wanted, well, with a no, if you choose to no process a case, yeah. there is, there are, there are no consequences. That's why of the 16 that were arrested, only three cases were no process. Well, that's why she there went were, in front of a judge, right? Right. There were other cases on which the DA, upon arraignment, uh, filed a motion to dismiss. Mm. That does put it before the discretion mm. of the judge. The reason that there was a, a motion to dismiss and not a null pros was because she wanted community, community service, service and she cases. has she okay. can't unilaterally okay. do that. And then there were I several that were charged with more serious offenses on which she is proceeding and expects there Eight to be them. consequences. Right. Yes. Exactly. We're talking to Andrew Cabral. <clears throat> so Andrew Cabral, for a, a long time, Republicans who have been uh, much more successful in gerrymandering than Democrats, so Democrats do it too, and they've done it in Massachusetts, um, they've long argued that that uh, they were gerrymandering along partisan lines, nothing to do with race. Now we have these files uncovered both by the estranged daughter of the so-called master of modern gerrymandering and a reporter that show that uh, race had a lot to do with how right. the gerrymandering lines were drawn. And and good for this for this estranged daughter, <laughs> but good for her. Um, for turning all of this stuff over, and I think the man's name is Hoffler, yeah, H-O-F-E-L-L-E-R, Thomas, yeah. Thomas Hoffler, who was played an yes played an integral role in gerrymandering um, in many many states, but also was uh, front and center with Stephen Miller on the immigration. Uh, all of the immigration stuff that's been going on. Mr. <laughs> I don't think, you know, you can say what you want about speaking ill of the dead, but I don't think it's, um, you know, uh, flinging stones too far to say that Mr. Hoffler definitely was a white supremacist. They look in his files and what they see is that he has been creating these intricate maps um, with overlays for districts where uh, black and brown people live. He has been drilling down. There's actually one example in there where he had tried to carve out or was was giving support to carving out a district that went straight through um, a historically black college. The right? largest in the country, North Carolina the largest in the country, or and a he, or, or straight, A&M. A&M. Straight A&M. through the college. Right. Yes, straight to the line. The line of demarcation would go straight through AT&T. so that it would remain Republican on both sides of that line. And he drilled down to the point of identifying which dormitories students lived in and and then uh, a series of other sort of um, identifiers to, to see where they would be voting or who they would be voting for. And he split it. It's, literal, it's almost literally splitting hairs to make sure that those can remain Republican districts. And this, I, I've been saying for a long time, it's a, it's a three or four-legged stool to protect a minority, really, of white male Republicans. It involves voter suppression, um, you know, moving polling places, changing hours, making it more difficult to vote, kicking people off the rolls. It involves gerrymandering, 
um, and uh, what's the, and and, it, and the use of the law, essentially the use of the law, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act and other things, um, to make sure that no matter how the votes fall, and what we've seen time and time again is uh, states where and counties, uh, districts where fifty four percent of the vote is Democrat is for Democrats, more than that, sixty percent. And you still have they don't have they don't have enough seats. It's in Congress. Yeah. You, you have a majority of votes overall and they still have fewer seats in Congress. And whoever figured this out and it's been years, it's been decades that of, of, of effort that's been put into this. It's an extraordinarily effective way to do this, because the only way you have to fight it is the courts. And as we just saw with Justice Roberts in the Supreme Court saying the federal government doesn't have the power uh, to to sort of intervene in something like this, leaving it to individual states, which is no in political extreme political well, that's gerrymandering, what I'm racial gerrymandering. That's what I'm wondering. They had yes. in, yeah. But the political is essentially the racial. If you I look agree, at the makeup of the parties, but I'm it wondering is, it is a distinction without a difference. I'm wondering now, and I don't know the answer, but I'm wondering now if if a case were brought based on these discoveries, which I think came after the Supreme Court. No, I be, actually were they I, I believe that that this story is about further disclosure of right. documents from this guy's files. My recollection was, and if one of you all in the control room could correct me if I'm wrong, please, that the initial batch of these was disclosed right before the Supreme Court decision. Can you confirm that that's right? Uh, uh, I think that's true. Well, okay. So we, we had the initial batch disclosed, but if someone were to bring a, a case involving this increasing amounts of information about the racial gen- gerrymandering, and go back to the Supreme Court. They could reconsider. You, you wonder they if they could say, they say "Okay, if they allow certiorari." Yeah, which they which they really exercise their discretion in in uh, in denying or allowing. But I, isn't that where it turns? So they had the initial documents before the first. Supreme Court case, and I could be wrong on this, but isn't that where they just said racial gerrymandering is wrong, but political exactly. Isn't. And so then the argument was, well, this is political and not racial, even though they were using the same information for the same I'm purpose. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I oh, thought, maybe I not. thought it okay. came before. But whatever it is, this stuff is... Uh, and by the way, I'm so glad you picked... The, it's By the way, it's North Carolina A&T, State oh, University. I'm sorry. No, I no, I got A&M. it wrong, too. The reason that's... You know, when people ask us to explain gerrymandering, and by the way, wherever it started, it started in Massachusetts. I don't right. know. It was like Senator Jerry It's actually something. Gary Man. His name is oh, it was Gary, Gary, not was that Jerry. His name? Okay. But it's Gary. Okay. it was gerrymandering to begin with. But oh. it, that is the best of all the examples. That is the the clearest example of what you do to, you know, rather than allow a unified group to vote as uh, uh, as an entity, which is sane, uh, which would have led to at least one of those two congressional districts likely controlled by a Democrat, you divide it in the middle and you end up with two Republicans. You know who, by the way, was totally screwed by that? If you excuse John Olver, my former boss, who was a state senator and then became a member of Congress, he was really disliked by Bill Bulger because he had when Bulger was the stand president because he had the temerity to actually stand up to Bulger on some issues. And so uh, uh, <laughs> Bulger carved his hometown out of his district, Amherst, out of his district. Wow. I mean, so I, I agree with you. Republicans have elevated to an art form. But it isn't like the Democrats have not. No, the ever Democrats have as your as, district. Yeah, my district. But but the Republicans are so much more ruthless. You know, right. I, I have to admire their spot. I mean, there's just no trying to sugarcoat it. Well, We're just going to go right for did the jugular you read here. What happened again in North Carolina? North Carolina, really. I mean, God love them. They stand out even among this. You know, uh, this morass that they're. You know, this 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 swamp that they're all wallowing in. They're, the Democrats 
they, they had to vote on the final, on a, on a veto override for the budget in North Carolina. Democrats were assured that nothing was going to happen yesterday on 9-11. They went to a 9-11 memorial and oh. the Republicans voted on the, uh, uh, to override oh, the budget. While they were at a 9-11 memorial, North Carolina Republicans, while Democrats were at this memorial, North Carolina Republicans, having lied to them that nothing would go on while they were at this memorial, voted to okay. override uh, a budget veto. Let's just do a quick aside Because I here. think North Carolina has a Democratic... Governor. Governor does now, yeah. And they have been trying to strip him of every power that he has since the day is he took his name office. Cooper? Is that what his name is? I think it is. I yeah. Think it is. Okay. So let's just, as a quick aside here, I, I often debate this. You know, I, I want to take the higher road and not sink to these levels. On the other hand, sinking to the levels seems to win. So I'm torn. You know, right. do you want to see? You have to know who you're up against, and you have to meet a fight with a fight. And I, I, I understand it in most cases, agree with the idea that you should always be held to a higher standard, that you should always, uh, you know, try to seek to achieve that. Because when you lose that higher standard, you lose much more than just that one fight. But here, the evidence is very clear that that's not working for Democrats. It's not you've got to bring the fight to the people that you're dealing with and understand fully what you're dealing with. And be able to meet that. In order to be successful, you need to be able to meet that on its own terms and at least be as as creative or as ruthless or whatever is required uh, in order to be successful. Because the, it is absolutely true. I mean, I, 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 it's, I, I'm not shocked at anything. And I have to say, I actually, when I saw that they had actually I didn't know that. had that vote while they were at a 9-11, it wasn't like they were even in recess or there was some you know, political event that all Democrats intended to go to. They went to a 9-11 memorial, and they chose to do it then. That's who you're fighting. Okay, Democrats excuse me, need if I may, that. you haven't heard the story. I'm going to give you the 30-second version rather than three. We need Bill Bulger to come back version. into... <laughs> well, speaking of Bill Bulger a third time, uh, I was the leader of a ballot campaign oh, in the early 1990s. I'm going to give you the very short version. There was the first law in the country to require every bank, publicly traded uh, corporation, and insurance company to disclose what they paid in state taxes. Weld was the governor. We cut a deal. We got 90% of what we wanted to make a very long story short. And I had a pledge from the Speaker of the House and Senate President they wouldn't move to repeal it for at least a year until we got the results. Long story short, uh, there was a motion on the Senate floor to repeal it. And I go to Bulger, and I said, you promised me. You he says, oh, come see me tomorrow morning. I sit in his office for two hours, his chief of staff, what was uh, J- Jim Julian? Was that his name? Yeah, he went. Over- no, Jim Julian was his chief of staff. Tells me, oh no, uh, the Senate President wants to talk to you. He's not in yet. He's just not in yet. Finally, I go out in the hall. He has just gaveled through repeal of the law that he was going to meet me about <laughs> while I'm sitting well, in his office. He saw you coming, so you know. That, <laughs> yeah, that- he was like, "Oh, it's Brownie. Just put him in the office. Uh, we'll get to him eventually." We're talking to Andrew Cabral. You know, uh, we don't have much time for this, but uh, Kamala Harris, uh, who had a spectacular first debate and and yet another of my incorrect uh, uh, predictions. I thought she'd skyrocket. She did for a week and then after going after Biden on uh, on busing, etc. Then fell back to earth. She's in single digits. She's put out a a criminal justice reform plan which touches almost all of the progressive things, getting rid of mandatory minimums, legalizing marijuana, end of the death penalty, etc. It seems to me, even though she has gone out of her way to to discredit Tulsi Gabbard, who really challenged her in the first right. debate. And was who, lying. Second, who will course. not be... Well, lying about some things, 
But there's a piece in the New York Times in January by Laura Bazelon, who's a law professor at the Loyola Law School Project, where Kamala Harris does have some splaining to do, as they used to say in the old days. About well, the, big position. Thing is, the big thing is she kept she kept fighting to uphold these wrongful uh, convictions, even though the wrongful convictions were the result of misconduct or evidence Sometimes on technicalities. And, yeah, false testimony. It was odd. Um, Fought DNA testing of, for yes. this Kevin Cooper guy, who we've discussed mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. I mean, I assume you would agree that even though she appears to be in the right place on a lot of issues, there is a record that she does have to explain. Right. Do Everybody has to explain their record. Everybody has to do that. And so it, for, for her, I think it'll, be, it'll end up having to be a combination of things. I think people are, um, are pleased with her criminal justice reform package because it, it is comprehensive and substantive um, in what she's seeking to do. But I don't think that that is going to carry the day. In other words, just, you know, in the context of, of running for president, filing a good plan that you, in good faith, intend to, to implement if you're president, I think people are still going to insist um, that she explain what she was thinking when she made those decisions. Right. And, and, and I would like the explanation from any candidate. If you're against the death penalty now and you're once for it, she says she's was, always been against well, it. Well, that's uh, actually, I don't believe that's true. Uh, that, that whether or not she has or whether or not she said it. I uh, mean, I think she said, re- she, I thought she's, I well, think she, she's been quoted as saying, I've always been against the death penalty. Well, yeah, there's this Bazelon piece. This is my federal judge in a part of California ruled death penalty was unconstitutional. She appealed. That was in 2014. Yeah, I mean, so I don't to me, know. that, uh, I, well, in any case, I, I want to understand what the what caused the transition, right. what caused the 180, and maybe, and, you know, whether it's on marijuana, mandatory minimums, death penalty. And all that sort of she stuff. She makes One a distinction. I just will just yeah. say she makes a distinction between personally being against the death penalty and following what the law is on it. So well, I understand. And by the way, yeah. you know who Eric Holder? I mean, a lot of as you know, prosecutors uh, yeah. have one position, but the law is another, and they enforce it. Before you go, I, I don't know if any of you, Andrea Campbell, who's the head of the uh, Boston City Council, is with us once a month. I assume be with us soon. Endorsed Harris yeah, yesterday, she which I, yeah. I actually thought was yeah. really well. She's quite a very charismatic, obviously very smart, talented woman. So we'll see what happens in in tonight's debate. Um, but so far, it, you're right. It was like that big. Moment. And she, maybe she'll do it tonight. Maybe she'll go into it a little more detail tonight. Maybe she will. Good to see you, Andrew okay, Cabral. Okay, Andrew Cabral, you. thank you very much. Andrew Cabral joins us every week for Law & Order. She's CEO of Ascend and the former Suffolk County uh, Sheriff and Secretary of Public Safety for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Thank you, Andrea. Up next, how Juul put up a smoke screen to mislead consumers about the dangers of vaping and what the FDA is doing about it. Our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan, joins us for that and more. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy, Marjorie. And healthcare could be front and center at tonight's debate now that Trump has handed the Democrats a new line of attack. According to the census, the number of uninsured Americans has gone up for the first time since the Affordable Care Act took effect, though there is no clear indicator as to why it could have something to do with Trump and the GOP's mission to dismantle Obamacare 
from eliminating the individual mandate, which they did, to shrinking the enrollment period, which they did for the exchanges. Joining us for his take on this, Purdue Pharma's uh, tentative deal to settle thousands, but not all, opioid lawsuits and other medical headlines, Zark Kaplan, Art is the Doctors, William F. and Virginia Connolly Miniature, and Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's Langone Medical Center, also the co-host of the Everyday Ethics Podcast, Hello, Art Kaplan. Hello, hello. Hello, Captain. Well, we'll get back to um, uh, that in just a second, but I want to start with um, the president's, the Trump administration plan to ban flavored e-cigarettes. We've all been reading these harrowing stories about uh, young people, in one case, a middle-aged guy who died, an otherwise healthy 40-something-year-old, um, using these vaping things, either for nicotine or marijuana, and uh, even marijuana bought in a supposedly uh, regulated marijuana store. So, I don't know. It seems to me they're pretty damn dangerous. Yeah, I agree. If you get these, a pocket of sudden deaths, the product isn't around that long. You don't know what's going on. At a minimum, you've got to pull it. At a maximum, I think you ought to ban it. It's clearly uh, um, whatever's going on, people are not uh, aware of how to avoid uh, these dangers or risks, whether they're vaping and doing something else at the same time or whether it's some misproduction, you know, uh, something went wrong in producing the product. But I, I, and I've never been a fan of this, uh, of vaping anyway. Some people maintain, including the manufacturers, that it's a great way to get off of cigarettes and transition. But you look at all those flavors and the cotton candy and the bubble gum and the whatever, and it's clear that they're trying to hook people onto nicotine addiction. So while it's certainly legitimate to say if you're going to pull these products because they've killed hundreds, shouldn't you be pulling tobacco because it's killed billions? But uh you know, I still think they've got. I, I, I think they're doing the right thing. Well, one of the uh, things I read, which makes some sense to me, is that if you're smoking, you're inhaling air with stuff in it. But if you're in smoking, obviously all the other things in it. But when you're vaping, you're inhaling um, oil. Uh, you know, in yeah. these, and, yeah. and that while vitamin E oil, which apparently has been found in some of these products, we don't know if that's the culprit, but that vitamin E oil, which would be fine to put in your skin and all that. Uh, is not meant to be in your lungs. And yep. uh, that's, I mean, it seems, I don't know anything about biology, I mean, I but know. it makes and, sense. And the score, I don't know either. Could be. It's a culprit. I'm sure people are going to uh, look into it. There's certainly some of this stuff that has kind of not just vitamin E, but I think even cannabis oil. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yep. In. Yep. Yep. So who knows? <clears throat> These are new things that people have never smoked before, as far as I know, or inhaled before, I guess you could say. Um, so I don't know. But you've got to pull the product until uh, you figure out, and it's up to the manufacturer to figure out what is going on, uh, no doubt about it. Some people have said to me, that's great. We're glad this is happening. Anybody going to do anything about the 40,000 dead people or dead kids a year from firearms and yeah. other, you know, things that oh, are causing huge public health messes. I, I'm i perfectly happy to say, you know, let's push on and, and get after other products that are unsafe or deadly. But the fact is pulling this one off the market makes sense. I'm not going to bemoan it, even though it, it's sort of there's more to be done. You know, can we? You, you did mention the the whole uh, issue about the switch. I want to play a little clip from one of their incessant make the switch ads, 
And, you know, they do the ads where they pretend that they're concerned about uh, kids. And I think the FDA was just this morning said that uh, use by uh, vaping by I think it's high schoolers is up 78 percent from 2017 to 2018, 48 percent for mid middle schoolers. Here is one of those make the a clip from one of those make the switch uh, campaign ads, which I assume is what got the FDA's undies in a bundle about them claiming that they're a healthier alternative. Here is here's the ad. As time went on and smoking started falling out of fashion in society and rules started changing, gave the jewel a real chance and found that I liked it. I found that it really works. The switch was easy. It was a no-brainer, really. But now that I look at people who smoke, I'm like, dude, really? You still doing that? You know there's an alternative to that, right? You don't have to do that. Why is uh, the federal government apparently doing the right thing here? In terms of uh, getting rid of something that might let people come off cigarettes? Yeah, no. I mean, why are, they, why are they going after vaping, essentially? And the president. And, yeah, why the president, the it? FDA. Why are they doing the right thing here? Because the death, this, this sort of uh, outbreak of deaths, I forget how many they had. six, is it so far? How many yeah. deaths is it yeah, so far? Yeah, I think it's six. six yeah. It's six dead and, and hundreds it's more. It's unexplained. And to tell you the truth, it's pretty clear that FDA was getting ready to go after vaping and... Uh, under the f- oh, former guy, Godley, right? Too. Yeah. Under yeah. the old, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they were, you know, they were in their wind-up, if you will, <laughs> to go after these guys, and then they had this outbreak of deaths, and they thought, okay, uh, we can take them out. It, they don't have the lobbying influence and the uh, huge number of addicts. Remember, I still think a quarter of the population smokes cigarettes, so mm. it's harder, difficult, uh, next to impossible, to really go after tobacco. But this thing is new, and so politically, I think they just saw an opening, to tell you the truth. It's Talk, pragmatic. We're talking Art Kaplan. Uh, so, Art Kaplan, let's talk about this um, this Sackler settlement. This is the uh, you know the opioid OxyContin maker. Um, our attorney general has said it's not enough, that there's no admission mm. of wrongdoing, that they should be... Um, uh, giving much more than I think is it is it three billion? Well, as Sacklers themselves uh, are giving three billion as part of the settlement. Billion, a lot of jurisdiction, you're right, out of the company. Total, yeah, yeah, three it, billion from the from them. Yeah, and the attorneys cash, general yeah. who are not signing on, like our own Healy, like New York State's, and a bunch of others, are savaging this uh, this settlement. Where are you on it? Well, it does seem to me some admission of guilt would be appropriate since we've got the evidence that. The family was, you know, leading the marketing. This was a pretty closely held company with direct intervention, not necessarily by alive Sacklers, but mm-hmm. by deceased Sacklers who were saying, you know, it's all safe and it's not addictive and we got to get people to prescribe bigger doses, blah, 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 blah. I also, uh, for those who didn't follow this or haven't sort of woken up to it, they're basically saying you're going to bankrupt the company, turn it into a foundation, devote its resources to uh, correcting the damage of the opioid epidemic, and a quarter of that money is going to come out of the pockets of the Sackler family. So I don't know. I mean, you'll ask Keeley. My view is that uh, they're not paying enough. They're super rich. Three billion will not get anywhere close to getting into the amount of money they made from this thing. So I don't like that part of it. I don't like the part of it that says um, we're not going to admit anything. 
that seems uh, wrong. And by the way, it'll be interesting. Either of you remember what happened to the tobacco money settlement funds that were supposed to go to fight tobacco addiction or smoking? Well, I thought a lot of it did, at least in the early years, did it not? Yeah, in the early years, but it's probably now something that politicians jump into and fill potholes with. So <laughs> the money didn't uh, stay where it was supposed to. There's a lot of work to be done on addiction. I'm a little nervous, too, that, you know, this money isn't going to go for what people say it's going to go to. Who knows what legislators can come up with? Maybe they'll build statues to Confederate war heroes in some parts. I don't know. But whatever it is, um, it ought to be tightly linked to uh, preventing future addiction and trying to make up for the huge healthcare costs that addiction uh, brought to the states and the counties. So I'm, I, bottom line for me, I think you could do better. I think you could do better. Well, you know, we always talk about deterrence. You know, people argue for the death penalty. Death penalty is a big deterrent. It's not, as it, as it turns out. But it, it certainly seems to me that it would be a deterrent if people, these white-collar criminals, went to jail. Well, the, like the INSIS people. Uh, like exactly. The, I mean, that's what I'm with you. So what's the difference? I, I, don't, I don't get it. You know, the INSIS people uh, face jail time, and the Purdue people don't. Uh, look, all I can say is I keep reading stories out of Massachusetts and New York where somebody uh, stole four pairs of socks and was mentally ill and went to jail for six months. And then there's the Sacklers who stole, I don't know, a million dollars and addicted everybody and killed uh, so many people that the organ donation rates went up and they're paying fines. It's a joke. I mean, we just don't do what we should in terms of making white collar and rich folks pay. Um, what's the... Uh, Penalty on our friend out there. What's her name? Uh, Laughlin, the one who's got the bribery to get the kid into school. One month. It's being all. One well, month is being recommended. That's the other by one. The that's, uh, that's Felicity Hoffman. Felicity Hoffman is the one. Laughlin's we don't know about Laughlin yet. yet. Yeah. yeah. The recommendation of the prosecutor in this case. Although at least well, Felicity done a pretty good job. At least Felicity Frank, Hoffman uh, said she was she really it, right. sorry and admitted she did something wrong and admitted her privilege and admitted all these things, which counts for something to me. But Plus, also, I thought she was really good on Desperate Housewives. Well, not only. <laughs> But nobody died in that case. These folks. Yeah. No, but I listen. This is no different from. I mean, we years a couple of years ago we Was interviewed. She Desperate Housewives. I don't know. A couple of years ago we so. interviewed the mother and a brother of a young woman who died in a GM car because they weren't willing to spend, you know, whatever it was, another fifty cents to change the ignition oh, yeah, switch. Yeah. yeah. There just yeah. isn't that. There isn't. For the most part, these these executives insulate themselves and lawyer up in ways that attorneys general and those sort of things ultimately say, let's get what we can. Having said that, the Healy's of the world, who, by the way, and to her credit, Maura Healy was the first attorney general who went after the Sacklers directly, mm -hmm. uh, not criminally, but civilly. Right. Uh, uh, and that started a yeah. trend, so we'll, we'll see what she happens. She was on Desperate Housewives. Okay, that's great. Yeah, Marjorie. so it's, you know, the... What is it? Shakespeare said the law is a ass. Mm. I mean, there's there's clearly inequities here in terms of what would happen to ordinary folk and what happens to the one percenters relative to uh, punishment. But if you want to deter, there's no faster way to deter than give out some jail time. People who are rich don't like that. Fines, yeah, they can figure them out. So, Art, you wrote a piece, uh, uh, I guess there's pieces of it that are hopeful and others that are depressing, with a colleague in CNN about the ability to eradicate cervical cancer if you want to. Could you fill us in? So, 
almost no cancers have a vaccine around right now that prevents them, but cervical cancer does. The cancer is caused by the HPV virus. It's a virus that is transmitted, I don't know, 98% of the time through sexual contact. It doesn't have to be sex. could be other forms of sexual contact, too. gives cervical cancer to women and, by the way, can cause an odd array of cancers in men uh, as well if they uh, uh, get it. A lot of us carry it, even if one was chaste and pure uh, and only had one partner. It doesn't mean the person you marry or chose as your partner hasn't had other uh, contacts before finding you, so uh, you could still be at risk. People are really loath to use this vaccine, and it's crazy because we could get rid of this cancer. There were 4,000 deaths last year. There are 40,000 uh, cases diagnosed each year. Marjorie, I don't know, you still uh, getting pap smears and all that rigmarole? And Thank you for asking, Art. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, there's a uh, there's that, and then you get a positive result, and then you have to go in and have a surgical biopsy, and then many women have to undergo, I don't know, thousands and thousands of them, major surgeries if the cancer's growing. So we could get rid of the whole thing, and we don't do it, and here's why. Some people basically hate this vaccine because it's connected to sexual contact. I just prefer to call it a cancer prevention vaccine, um, but it freaks people out. There are others who say it's not safe, and there's all this information showing that it's dangerous and risky, which is nonsense. The CDC has looked at this one, too, up and down and backwards and forwards, just like the measles. There's no big risk factors here for anybody. And... Um, there's a uh, uh, cost issue. So for some people, it's not covered. It's a three-shot uh, series. A lot of even American young people have had it uh, the first shot, but they haven't had the second and third. So the whole thing's stupid. And uh, let me add in, internationally, cervical cancer, probably the second leading cause of death for women worldwide. Um, hundreds of thousands of women are dying, and we should be after that too. So um, here's the thing where we got a solution we can get rid of, eliminate a whole disease, and we're not doing it. And by the way, you, you said in your piece there are a couple of countries you cite, Australia and Rwanda, just as two, who have made on track, yes? Yeah, major strides. So, yeah, I'm glad you reminded me. So in uh, Rwanda, which is, you know, a poor African nation, they just mounted this gigantic campaign to go after cervical cancer. The rates are falling fast. They've got like 95% compliance. Australia and Scotland, too, by the way, have undertaken big public health initiatives to wipe out uh, cervical cancer. We could do that, too. We should be doing that. And it's working in these other countries. It's not even a hypothetical. Uh, okay, let's move on to something else. You know, it's interesting that, that uh, we're in the vape situation. As you pointed out before, the president's right there. Let's ban, ban these um, vaping devices. And I think it's a great idea to ban these vaping devices. But but it's like we go – we look at every single solitary thing, if you're from a certain perspective, on guns, except for the guns, you know, uh, mental health. Now we got this new thing on uh, mental health from the former NBC – Chairman of NBC, Bob Wright, who's, an, um, I guess, a buddy of the, of the president's, on mental health and, and mass shootings. Call me very suspicious, but what does he think we should do? <laughs> well, Marjorie, the thing you should do is you should join that uh, country club he's running down there in Mar-a-Lago because apparently that gives you much more job security than, say, a John Bolton. <laughs> 
if you want to really influence this president, you get you know for yeah. the Veterans Administration. I guess you do. Yeah. Ideas about gun control. You mm-hmm. got to go have a couple of meals, a few drinks. He's mm-hmm. interested in that crowd. He listens to them apparently and doesn't fire them. Uh, they go on and on. Anyway, so the idea here is maybe we could come up with some early warning system. Uh, what was that Tom Cruise movie years ago? Uh, the predicted crimes before they happen. Oh, yeah. Oh, the um, the grid thing. Oh, yeah, but gosh. Anyway, listeners will know what I'm talking about. So it's it's a version of that. Maybe there are subtle brain changes or uh, uh, other indications of your mood that you could get out of what you post on Facebook or whatever that's saying, I'm about to go ballistic and shoot people. Um, to me, I guess the simplest way to put it is this. There are plenty of other countries – Israel, Switzerland, Canada, that have a whole lot of guns. I assume they have about the same rate of mental illness as we do, and they don't have the mass shootings. And the difference is all of them have much stricter uh, background checks, much stricter training on how to use weapons and certify people to be, you know, appropriately qualified to keep them safely stored and all that, and uh, competency assessment. And that's what we need. It's clearly gun control. It yeah. isn't mental health. But it's Minority you, Report, we, by the way, the Tom Cruise movie, right? Yeah, minority minority Report. Can we get back, though, to this for a second? We all, I mean, at least the three of us, think that, of course, they should do something on the gun front. Putting that aside for a moment, uh, on the merits of this proposal itself, while it wouldn't be your first choice, what's wrong with their uh, with the administration's embrace of this, uh, this uh, notion that we might, in the quarter of cases that are acknowledged where the shooter is uh, has some mental illness, the ability to predict, uh, they suggest, is such that we could prevent some of these. Do you, do you buy it, or do you, even though it isn't your first choice, do you well, buy it or no? Two things, two things wrong with it. What it is won't it? work, and it won't work. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you. I think so this is ridiculous. Women who get restraining orders, they know their husband or partner's been violent, right? Yeah. Yep. And they say to the cops, this guy's got a gun or he's threatening to beat me up. And the cops say, call me when it's happened because we're kind of busy and we don't show up for threats. The whole system doesn't respond to forecasts and threats. They're never going to be able to do it quickly enough in terms of response to intercept uh, people who are going to do this. I, I think literally it won't work. Yeah, and that seems to be what a lot of the mental health people are saying in this story, too. You might end up with flagging thousands of false positives, and you're going to be sorting through who's serious yep. and who's not. Well, there's also just... some serious privacy concerns, which we didn't yeah. even get to. I mean, I think this, the and, issue and is the, the way, guns, repeat, obviously. Does it, does it work with domestic violence when no. it's happened in the past to prevent it? When you say, get me a restraining order, or this guy's a high-risk person to hurt me again? No. So I don't see it. I just don't see it. I'm not against trying to, you know, do better with the mentally ill and all that. That's great. I wish we'd actually put some money into resources to treat the mentally ill, which we don't have. So, again, uh, if you had early prediction, I assume all you do is lock people up because we don't have much of a mental health system. So, Art Kaplan, according to the Census Bureau, fewer people are uh, covered with health insurance. Um, The decline came in 2018, and experts are blaming the Trump administration's effort to undermine Obamacare for that decrease in the insurance. And saying it's particularly guilty. weird guilty, coming guilty, at guilty. a time when unemployment is as low as it is. So right. what is it? It's that. It's dismantling Obamacare. A lot of the states 
saying we're not going to spend our Medicaid money or not going to do the expansion and uh, those roles grow uh, because of a failure, so to speak, to uh, maintain Medicaid coverage in many states while the employment numbers are up. You know, some of the state budgets are pretty wheezy, so they they just have cut back and cut back. But yeah, I think it's basically the assault on Obamacare, making it harder to purchase that minimal coverage that's really responsible for the increase. I think the Democrats do have a political issue here because I think Americans do care about health care. However, you know where I'm going to go with this because I do it every time we talk about access. Until we do something about prices and cost, we're never going to get access, right? It's like, I want access, but if you don't bring the cost of the system down, then you can't afford it. Well, isn't it, by the way, almost always reform efforts go to access first because it's easier than price controlling, right? Yeah, yep, but it's backwards. You've got to get a handle on price, and then you have more money. Your money will go further in terms of coverage, whatever your politics about this. Yeah, actually, the, uh, earlier today we discussed, discussed surprise medical bills. So what are you doing on the Everyday Ethics podcast there, Art Kaplan? It's timely. By the way, uh, sorry, everybody, this was like a litany of misery today. That's uh, okay. So we're going to do, to top this all off, wealth porn. Is it good to admire the rich? Is it good to have all these shows on TV, on television that are extolling you know, what it's like to live a lifestyle that's very rich. I know this goes all the way back to lifestyles of the rich and famous, but we were looking at it and there's more of it now. There's just more and more sort of extolling the glories of being rich. Sometimes it suggests that you have to be a jerk to be rich, but even so, it's kind of we're all seem to be fascinated with what the 1% is doing and is that actually uh, almost supplementing or supporting the myth that if we tried hard enough, we could be in the 1%. I hope you mentioned the gold leaf in the Trump apartment on the whatever floor of Trump Tower. I've actually always found that quite hey, did I ever t- seductive. I mean, I'm sorry to extend this just yeah. one second, but I ever yeah. tell you I, I was in Mar-a-Lago once? No, no. you were not. Doing what? Yeah, Serving drinks? What were uh, you doing? No, no. There was a uni- when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, they did a fundraiser, and they rented Mar-a-Lago to do the fundraiser in with the 1%. So I was there as the hired entertainment, sort of the barking dog and jumping around doing a talk. It is the most garish, ridiculous place ever. I mean, you guys, it's hard to describe it unless you see it, but it is – forget the gold leaf. It is somewhere between a New Orleans bordello and a – kind of, uh, I don't know, you know, Nantasket Beach Fun Fair. I mean, it's like... Yeah. It's really shocking, actually, to me. So it's not yeah, like it, the uh, the WASP uh, uh, yacht The country club. With all, everything's no, white wicker. No, not the understated... <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. No. Great to talk to you, Art. Art Kaplan, thank you very much. Bye. Art Kaplan joins us every week. He's the Drs. William Meff from Virginia Conley Midi Chair and Director of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU Langone Medical Center and the co-host of the Everyday Ethics Podcast. Up next, Malcolm Gladwell is here to talk about his new book, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Mardrigan. Don't talk to strangers. It's age-old advice handed down from generation to generation from parent to child. A rule to abide by. No explanation necessary. It belongs to the canon of other parental rules, like look both ways before crossing a street and brush your teeth before going to bed. But leave it to Malcolm Gladwell to take this child-rearing trope and turn it into a compelling exploration of the pitfalls of miscommunication, the hazards of maneuvering within a society where we don't know how to talk to strangers, and the preconceptions we often bring to a chance encounter that can land us in a life-or-death situation. The book is called Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know, and it looks at a series of real-life events from Sandra Bland's interactions with a Texas state trooper to Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. Malcolm is a best-selling author, New Yorker staff writer, host of the podcast Revisionist History. Malcolm, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much for being here. My, it's my pleasure. You know, it's, it's a big thrill to talk to you. So elaborate on your thesis a little bit. What, what, what is the overall theory? Well, the idea is that we evolved as human beings to communicate effectively with relatives, loved ones, clan, fellow clan members. And we're now in a situation where uh, the most crucial communication in our lives is, are with people, is with people who we don't know well, who we aren't intimate with. Um, and there is the same strategies that work with your friends and family don't work with strangers. And so I'm interested in sort of cataloging all of the things that go wrong and what, how we should adjust to that fact. Um, and uh, and I, it's this, as you said in the intro, the Sandra Bland case is my kind of uh, is my text for this because it is a, a, a paradigmatic example of how an encounter, an, a trivial, ordinary encounter can go completely off the rails. I want to get to Sandra yeah. Bland in a second, but before you do, I just want to stay on the thesis for a second here. Is the reason we're so bad at this with strangers is because as humans we sort of default to the notion that people, what they say is what they mean. They're telling us the yes. truth. So this is one of the central ideas in the book. It's an idea from a psychologist named Tim Levine who has... Uh, who was trying to explain one of the great puzzles in psychology, which is hum- why are human beings so bad at uh, knowing whether someone is telling the truth, right? So this has been studied a million different times, and we always come back to the fact that we are slightly better at chance at detecting deception, which doesn't seem to make sense. You'd think we'd be really good at it, right? We, you'd think evolution would have, would have prepared us for this most crucial of tasks. And Levine says no, in fact, what evolution has prepared us to do is to implicitly trust. Because if you implicitly, if you give everyone the benefit of the doubt and assume the person you're talking to is telling the truth, it's what makes civil society possible, right? You can't function unless you are willing to kind of, um, you know, to enter into any interaction under the assumption that the information that's going to be passed back and forth is the real thing. And that's what we've been selected to do. And what that means is that occasionally we will be deceived. We will, if someone really sets out to pull the wool over our eyes, they will succeed at that. That's so we should doubt of, but verify. Is that the... Uh... Well, he would say, and I agree with him, that there's nothing wrong with this, that the, the, the occasional deception is a small price to pay for all of the lovely things that come from trust. But it, it does mean we have to own up to the fact that we will be occasionally deceived. Right. So I wonder if it matters what you do for a living, because you think of people that are like 
police officers or de- mm. and this isn't to do with Sandra Bland, police officers in general or detectives who try to investigate murders or or people that uh, are judging whether a defendant is guilty or not guilty uh, who spend their time doing that. Or he reporters. writes about CIA agents who can't figure well, out whether somebody's telling the truth I or know, not. I know, which is pretty de- depressing. But yeah. besides the CIA agents or, or reporters, I mean, I've been a reporter all my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard Anderson Cooper mention this to you the other night on his show, that, that you like to think you are a little bit better at detecting. But no. 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 <laughs> so nobody's – I mean, there are – are there people in the world – is there a one in a million person who's really good at detecting lies? Yes. Uh, but in the main, and in fact, uh, there had been studies done particularly on law, law enforcement, um, like, you know, trained interrogators, FBI agents, customs agents. They believe they are good at telling whether someone's lying. They're not. Um, and in fact, um, many of the beliefs held by people like that about what, you know, the the... There, for example, there's a very common belief among police officers that gaze aversion um, is a sign of deception, that if the suspect you're talking to won't look at you, it's a sign that they're lying. This is nonsense. In fact, you know, there's a, a woman actually, in, uh, a very, very prominent psychologist here in Boston, um, Lisa Feldman Barrett, who has done some uh, 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 incredibly important work um, documenting the extent to which our expressions are not a, are a reliable guide to the way we feel on the inside. Um, so this is like there's a the, we have to sort of come to grips with the fact that um, as much as we we may want to be um, or want to think we are adept at making sense of these kinds of situations, we're not. So why does Sandra Bland, who I assume, I don't know if we said a minute ago, obviously she was the woman in Texas mm-hmm. who was stopped by a state yeah. trooper for a traffic infraction. Uh, they got into it. She ended up in a jail cell, and three days later she allegedly hanged herself. Why would you open and close your book with this? With that harrowing dialogue back and forth. I mean, that was so chilling. With the dash cam, her own phone video. Between convers- yeah. their, co- yeah. their conversation as it gets more and more emotional and upsetting. Go why ahead. does it open and close your book? Because I got... My starting point in all this is I read a book by uh, a criminologist named Frank Zimring, which was called Why Police Kill. And it was a book about this astonishing fact that a thousand Americans die every year at the hands of police officers. And he was trying to figure out why, because there's no other that's way out of whack with other Western democracies. And I read that and it really it I had no idea the number was that high. And then. After and that book was sort of written in the midst of this wave of police shootings that we had, that we became aware of because they've been going on forever. We suddenly were paying attention to them, and of all of those encounters, the Sandra Bland one, maybe because it was so stupid. I mean, it's like he, she literally doesn't use a, she doesn't put on her 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 um her Blinker. lane indicator, yeah. Yeah. lane change indicator, and the cop is there, and we also that we. Un- unusually in these cases, we do have this because of the dash cam video. We have a complete transcript of everything that happened. And so un- there's no he said, she said controversy afterwards. We know exact, And you can track all of the ways in which the officer, Brian Insinia, just kind of tragically, unbelievably misreads the situation. But you reject the notion that it's simply a racist cop. Uh- yeah. Well, do I think race played a role? Absolutely. I did not, in this book, I did not want to, 
I think that sometimes when we're presented with these kinds of situations, we identify race as an issue, and then we think we're done. And we say, oh, this is just another racist cop. And we say that, and then it happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again. We never make any progress because we sort of say, well, what are you going to do, right? What I wanted to do was to get beyond the kind of personal explanation of why these situations go awry and get to something deeper and more structural. What is the something deeper? That, I mean, the last third of the book is concerned with, uh, is there something about the strategy that law enforcement uses that um, accentuates, accelerates the risk of these kinds of encounters going awry? And I think there is. I think that that we have... um, turned police officers into uh, engines of suspicion. And we have tolerated an extraordinarily high miss rate, a false positive rate in police activity. In other words, if you're in a situation, as we are now, where police officers are pulling over 100 people to find one person with guns or drugs, that's crazy and unacceptable. So can we stay within the criminal justice system for a minute? You, one of your more depressing portions of this book, Malcolm Gladwell, is when you're talking about bail. Mm-hmm. And you compare the judgment of a judge, whose name I forget for the moment, with artificial intelligence. And yeah. I think people probably can predict the AI does a better job of yeah. predicting a, a risk uh, 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 out in the world. But it, and he, that ju- was a man, right? The judge in the yeah, case? I, was call, a- I, don't get, I don't use well, his name. I call him Judge Solomon. Okay, yeah. Judge Solomon. Uh, so that judge <laughs> is, <good>. is, <laughs> is, is, is at least trained to do what he did poorly or he or she did poorly. Yeah. How about a jury who yeah. is uh, – talk about talking to strangers or listening to strangers. Yeah. How can people with no expertise ever circumvent the obstacles you're describing in your book and deliver justice to anybody? Well, we, tr- we make a very good attempt in trials to make the verdict uh, contingent on the quality of the evidence, right? So the, in a certain sense, trials, when they work well, um, adjust for our, our institutional adjustments for the fact that just a kind of simple face-to-face encounter or, um, or snap judgment is probably going to lead us astray doesn't work in bail hearings. Well, it does. But a bail hearing is a very different thing. In a bail hearing, a judge has to make a decision not over the course of a you know, four-day trial, but in the course of a five-minute encounter. So we really make it hard on the judge in a bail hearing. Um, and secondly, but I will say on, it is true, though, that, um, for example, and actually I mentioned Lisa, Lisa Barrett. She has a wonderful thing in her book about um, the trial of the Boston uh, marathoner bomber here in Boston. Oh, Sarnoff. And how people, there was an, you know, the, one of the reasons he was given as harsh a sentence as he was, was that there was a perception that he did not show remorse. And she goes on this, like, and the jury was convinced this kid was not remorseful. And she goes on this absolutely brilliant riff about, well, what, what exactly does showing remorse look like? Look like? Particularly if you're, he's not from our culture. I mean, he comes from a culture that has very different codes about male behavior. But the notion that there is a simple and easily identifiable set of body language and facial expressions associated with a co- an emotion as complex as remorse is absurd, right? And yet, and yet we have juries all the time carry that expectation in the courtroom that we can tell whether person X is being remorseful or not. 
We're talking, we're talking to Malcolm. Gla- oh, sorry. We're Go talking ahead. to Malcolm Gla- uh, uh, Gladwell, and the book is "Talking to Strangers: What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know." You know, I want to talk to you about Bernie Madoff, but before that, um, I, I mention this all the time because it's one of the scariest things to me. Uh, it happened a long time ago in Boston, twenty twenty-five years, where uh, Charles Stewart shot his wife Carol DeMady Stewart in the back of the head. Uh, Carol DeMady Stewart was a lawyer. Uh, they were a middle-class couple. They had just left a birthing class at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, so they just spent the previous hour and a half practicing breathing techniques because she mm-hmm. was about to give birth. And the, the, the reason it was so scary is because you think, wow, this woman is no dope. She's a lawyer. Uh, she had no idea that her, the man she was sleeping next to every night was had been plotting her murder for, for months. And that is a segue into Bernie Madoff because mm-hmm. Bernie Madoff, uh, the, the Ponzi scheme guy that convinced all these investors to give them all their money or lots of their money, he also fooled their family. Mm-hmm. So what's your analysis of Madoff? Well, so Tim Levine, the, the psychologist um, who I, uh, whose work I, I, I rely on um, quite heavily in my book, he would say... Um, the first mistake we make is when we're confronted with scam artists like that is to think that the reason they're su- so successful is that they are, um, you know, evil geniuses. And, in fact, that's not the right place to look. The right place to look is with the people who are fooled. But this is a simple consequence of what we were talking about earlier, that as human beings we are hardwired to believe. And the reason that strategy works is that actually – most people in the world do tell the truth most of the time. Um, but a very, very small number um, are, uh, don't and are, uh, have deliberately set out to fool us. And if you deliberately set out to fool people, most of the time, if you're even reasonably good at it, you will succeed. So that's why, you know, spies, spies never get... If you look at the history of, like, spies in America, they all get caught, like, or anywhere in the world. It takes, like, 10 years to find them, right? These are people, and they're not... They're not James Bond level. Like the Russian that we just talked about that was 10 years in Putin's office or yeah, whatever. <laughs> exactly. Like it just, it just it's really hard if you're if you're if you are constructed like a normal human being. It is really hard for you to reach the point where you're willing to suspect another human being of systematically misleading you. Is it fair to call you spy obsessed? It is. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm I am. And I'm what is that than, what is that about? More than spy obsessed. What is that? And that predates <laughs> talking I, to strangers. Yes, uh, yes. For those there are many don't. good spy stories in talking to strangers, but that is an outgrowth of the fact that I I always I always uh, joke and by the way it's not but it's not a joke. I think it's true. If a book has been written with the word spy in the title, I have read it. <laughs> Fiction or nonfiction doesn't matter. I have like I have rows of spy books at home. <laughs> so, um, I, I I don't think I'm particularly any more of a suspicious person than anybody else. But um, it, it was obvious to me a long time before he ever ran for president that Donald Trump was a total and complete con man. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm always stunned by the millions of Americans who don't see that. So what's that about? Oh, I knew that Trump would come up. <laughs> well, it's, it, I'm sorry, but it's, 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 <laughs> no. like the, it's like the guy you met at 14 years old at the carnival that came to town and you learned the hard way that, that this was a person you shouldn't believe, but people do believe him. Yeah. Well, um, Trump, the word Trump, kind of point out parenthetically before I answer this question, does not appear in my book by design. It does not. I just wanted to ask you I know, anyway. I know, I know. Uh, so, uh, well, I don't know whether I would say that 
people who support Trump support Trump because he's fooling them. I would say they support him because they genuinely understand what he stands for and they agree with him. I, I don't think of him as a... Is he a con man? He seems to be the opposite of a con man. He's actually quite straightforward in what he believes and what he's trying to do. In fact, um, he's almost painfully... Uh, it's almost painfully obvious what he would like to do. He doesn't want people to immigrate to the country. He doesn't, you know, he he doesn't believe in global warming. These aren't... I don't think these are... Um, positions that he secretly disbelieves. I think the secret of success is he actually does believe them. He genuinely doesn't like immigrants and genuinely doesn't believe in global warming and genuinely thinks that Hillary Clinton is a crook. And, you know, I could go on. I, so I, I don't know whether I, I struggle a little bit with the notion that that Trump is is um, he's not a Bernie Madoff figure. Bernie was was. Um, was A and was pretending he was was A and pretending to be B. Trump is A and pretending to be A, right? It just so happens we don't like A. So can we stay in politics just for a second there, yeah. Malcolm Gladwell? I'm going to spend three hours of my life that I will never get back tonight uh, watching Ten Strangers on my uh, You're television. You do that to screen. yourself. I am going to do it to myself. Yeah. I'm paid to do that to myself. <laughs> Uh, uh, you'll be elsewhere. We'll tell people where you are in a minute, even though we're told it is sold out and there's no uh, line. But in case people want to know where you're going to be hanging out, uh, any advice for me? I'm not talking to strangers. I'm listening to strangers. I want to be able to tell whether I'm being deceived or whether or not my default to yeah. believing the truth is the place okay. I should be. You have no chance of knowing whether you're being deceived, so give up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you really should do is reflect on the absurdity of the debate format as a way to get to know something meaningful about the candidates. Um, it's each candidate has far too short a time and uh, it's essentially a, a test of their theatricality, right? But of course, is what is the connection between theatricality and your ability to be a good president? I mean, it's not zero, but it's not large. So how do you make it? How do you make it? I mean, I ridicule all the time the absurdity of the, even though we're going there for the primary for a week, is the absurdity of the New Hampshire system where essentially if the candidate has not, you know, uh, changed your kitty litter, uh, that he or she is not qualified to be your president. I would argue how they perform in mass media is even in an odd setting like this is much more relevant to me and my judgment than those kinds of uh, uh, aberrational one-on-one kinds of things. So what do I do? Huh. Um, I, I, this, you know, I have a kind of, this is a separate thing, an obsession of mine that is a result of this book. You know, I'm, I think we should be incredibly careful about extracting information from face-to-face encounters. So I no longer really believe in job interviews. I think that they're usually a really, really bad idea. You should probably shouldn't meet the people you're hiring um, unless they're doing a, a, a job that requires them to be an effective kind of social public person. Um, in the case of these... I sort of think it's probably a bad idea. I think it would be better if we could start over. It would be better not to meet the candidates and just hear about them. And then I have kind of my idea of the perfect uh, test would be we gather them all and we give them a problem to solve, a real-world complex problem. And we say, go away. We have six, you have six hours to come back, and you have to give a speech in six hours on how you will solve this problem. <laughs> go. 
It's like the Great British Baking Show, a variation on exactly, a theme. Exactly. exactly. Uh, we're talking That's to, better. We're talking to Ma- uh, Malcolm Gladwell. The book is Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. You also talk about Jerry Sandusky, the Penn, mm-hmm. State, Penn State coach who uh, abused, uh, sexually abused who knows how many children and got away with it for years. Mm-hmm. And it, even when in one case an assistant coach saw him uh, uh, abusing a child in his shower. And this happens in different circumstances, all over the place, over and over again. Mm. So what's going on there? We just don't want to believe in child abuse or what? Well, there's a, yeah, there's a million things going on there. One is, of course, that a pedophile is a someone who is, uh, who is by definition, trained in the arts of deception. So their whole um, uh, life is organized around the fact that they are trying to conceal their greatest passion. Um, so my, my focus in that chapter is not on Sandusky. It's not a chapter about pedophiles. It's a chapter on how should we treat the people who are fooled by pedophiles. Because in the Penn State example, famously, the prosecution was not content in bringing Sandusky to justice. They then went after the leadership of Penn State University um, and, I believe, um, ruined the reputations and convicted of uh, and, and dragged through the legal process uh, three uh, perfectly honest people who did nothing wrong. Um, as opposed to saying a pedophile is someone trained in the art of deception, this guy is evil, it is a terrible thing he did what he did, um, let's try and heal these wounds and move on and put the man behind bars. They then, they then contrive to say that somehow the leadership of the university was complicit. And if you examine the case closely, it makes absolutely no sense, right? No sense whatsoever. You cannot penalize people for trusting in others, particularly if they're in positions of responsibility. What they were essentially saying, the prosecutors in that case, is that they would rather have, as president of Penn State University, someone who was deeply suspicious of his own employees and who would move and reach terrible conclusions about them based on the slightest bit of evidence. And by the way, the evidence, evidence, I put evidence in quotation marks, what the leadership of Penn State was told about Sandusky was not that he was a pedophile. What they were told was a story that was, if you, I mean, it it was very clear in the trial. They were told something that was filled with doubt that all kinds of other people were told the same thing and didn't thought didn't think it amounted to a case against Jerry Sandusky. I mean, there was this was the most. If you look at the details of this case, it was the most. It is the most murky, uh, doubt filled, difficult. It's not like the Larry Masser case. Beyond at, him, at, beyond him, you're saying beyond Sandusky. When you say beyond Sandusky, when you say it's the most murky and all the other adjectives yeah. you use, beyond Sandusky, not Sandusky. Well, what what the the process of bringing him to justice was something that was long and torturous and filled with. It was never a slam dunk case. It was. It took forever to figure out what he was up to, and because it was, it's a hard case. I mean, it's like, and it's it was. Anyway, oh, so is the moral of the whole story: should I either have to avoid face to face encounters mm-hmm. or accept whatever your your colleague said? Deception as a normal part of a civil society. We, should that... learn, we have to learn to deal with and cope with the likelihood of being deceived, A. But more than that, I think we need to um, be 
much more, I talk about at the end of the book about the need for caution and humility, that we can't walk into a situation expecting to get, in, to, get to the heart of the stranger that we're meeting. We need to understand, you know what, it's, this is a, a long and difficult process, and I need to be satisfied with something less than 100% of uh, the truth or 100% of the, of the secrets of this person. You know, the, this was the problem with, I have a chapter on the CIA's use of enhanced interrogation after 9-11. This was the central problem there. It was the expectation that if you only tried hard enough and, you know, and dunk someone in water long enough and sleep deprive them for enough hours, you could extract the truth from a terrorist about what their future plans were. And that's just not, that's not the way it works, right? So, it, you can't do that. So, so are you not what you appear to be? What, are saying, you not what you appear to be? I don't think any of us are what we appear to be. So, do you have any advice before you go for people who are on Match.com and OKCupid? <laughs> what are they supposed to do? <laughs> well, by the way, you know, uh, uh, dating sites are the. I, I mean, now I now I, really, I should have done a chapter on them. Dating sites are the the most absurd manifestation of this idea. This idea that you would use someone's self description as a basis for whether you're attracted to them or not. <laughs> okay. It's good to meet you, Malcolm. Yeah. Well, thanks thank so much. Thank you for very your time. much. Uh, congratulations and congratulations for the uh, podcast Revisionist History, which is a big hit uh, in, in my family. Malcolm uh, Gladwell is a best selling author and New Yorker staff writer. His latest book is Talking to Strangers What We Should Know About People We Don't Know. You're going to be at the Back Bay Event Center uh, in conversation with Harvard Law Professor Noah Feldman at 7 30 tonight, organized by Harvard Bookstore. Unfortunately, it's sold out. So I guess I don't know why we're talking about it. But anyway, I hope you have a good time tonight. I will. Maybe there is a way you can sneak in if somebody doesn't <laughs> show up last minute. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks so much. Up next, how the head of NOAA is trying to boost morale after Sharpiegate WGBH science correspondent Heather Goldstone joins us for that and more on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Bradley. She's Mardrigan. Earlier this week, Neil Jacobs, he's the acting NOAA administrator, delivered a mixed forecast at the National Weather Association's annual meeting while he defended NOAA's decision to disavow a forecaster's tweet, which contradicted Trump's insistence that Alabama was indeed in Hurricane Dorian's path. He also expressed his support for the National Weather Service and its forecasters, assuring them that their jobs were not at risk. But job security or not, what damage has been done to morale and the sanctity of science there? Here with us in Studio 3 for a take on this and other headlines is GBH's science correspondent, Heather Goldstone. Heather's an expert in ocean science, host of Living Lab Radio, which you can catch Sundays at noon right here on 89.7 and Mondays at 9 and seven p- nine a.m. and 7 p.m. on WCAI 90. Great to see you. Hi. Yeah, good to be here. Well, before we get to uh, Noah and the Sharpie incident, um, Climate change and Hurricane uh, uh, Dorian, much has been made of the fact that it was stalling. You wrote a piece about this with one of your partners. Tell us about the stalling phenomenon. Yeah, so this is really interesting. We've definitely been hearing in the past few years um, with hurricanes 
uh, that, that there's more rain that's been falling. We've been seeing more flooding, right? Not just worrying about storm surges, but whether it's Florence or Harvey, um, that there's a lot more rain. And that makes sense because warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. There's more energy for the storms and then more rain. But then it turns out that's actually being compounded, it looks like, by a tendency, a greater tendency for these storms to kind of slow down and actually stall out the way that Dorian did. But that, of course, is also what Florence and Harvey basically did, right? And it's a much longer trend than just the past few years. There was a a study that came out last year where they actually looked at 70 years and found that there had been a a really major increase in this tendency if you compared like the first 35 years of the study to the last 35 years being the most recent 35 years, that there'd been a a big increase in the tendency of hurricanes to, to slow down and stall this way, which means that they're essentially much more damaging because they just sit in one place for such a long time. Um, They also tend to be harder to predict when they're like that. Um, because it's often because there's a lack of strong kind of steering winds in the atmosphere pushing them to go one place or another. So forecasters are kind of left with this like, ah, we're not really sure where it's going to go next. And sometimes involved with those stalling storms or these kind of erratic shifts in one direction or another. So it's a a new and uh, I guess if you're one of the forecasters, you could say interesting challenge. Speaking of forecasters, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Speaking of forecasters, I think it was three or four months ago we were talking to you about uh, the uh, practically the only outliers in the science community on climate change, and that was meteorologists. Not, I don't mean that every single one of them, but there were more meteorologists who were not on board than probably any subset of particular a particular science community. It, in light of what you're describing, uh, it, it, are more and more of them coming along or no? Yeah, and, you know, I, I don't actually um, have at my fingertips or the tip of my tongue, like the the most recent statistics on what percentage of meteorologists do or don't. But I think definitely um, this is one of those things where um, the community as a whole was perhaps slower to adopt the climate scientist consensus on climate change. Um, But I mean, it's been it was I think 2015 when the American Meteorological Association said, "Okay, we need to lay this to rest as a community, we meteorologists absolutely um, accept and adhere to the scientific consensus on climate change. Um, there have been some particularly high profile, you know, the the beloved local newscast um, weather guy in certain parts of the country that have been high profile um, deniers, you know, or saying that this isn't something that we should be talking about. Um, and so I think that gets a lot of attention. But I do think that the field as a whole has definitely been. The reason I mean, I, the reason it's so important, I don't mean to single them out beyond the fact that I think it was as recently as a year and a half ago, the time, New York Times and The Globe both did stories in succession about the yeah. percentage of deniers is when you think about it, I'm sure you thought about it, but I hadn't until you were speaking. The only scientist who most of us come into contact with on a regular basis, is a meteorologist. Doctors right? and the weather guy. And, doctors, and I shouldn't right. say the weather guy. I'm sorry. No, weather right. forecasters, right? But um, are, are, are two of the most prominent um, right. people that we, that we come into contact with who are kind of our, our connection to um, the scientific world. And that's why I think more than whether or not um, meteorologists uh, accept the climate science, I, I think we're hopefully getting, getting past that stage um, there's still this debate about what role should meteorologists and, and weather forecasters as they're talking to the public play in talking about climate science and is, you know, when they're making a forecast of a hurricane coming ashore the right time to talk about climate change or should we 
wait a week or wait a few months or, you know, and, and I think that kind of debate has definitely been playing out with the past few hurricane yeah. seasons where I guess I personally, this is just my opinion, fall on the side of it needs to be happening as the storm, yeah, you know, with those absolutely. forecasts because absolutely the first the first priority absolutely has to be the public safety information about what is happening. But at that same time, while you have that increased captive audience, that's the time to start drawing the connections as well for the longer term to set the stage for that. We're talking to Heather Goldstone. So um, a look back to Hurricane Harvey that uh, uh, that struck, was it two years ago now? Yeah, it's been about two years. Yeah. Now. What is the findings of how people are doing there Texas, all this time yeah. later? Yeah, Texas. So this was um, really interesting. What happened was that a number of universities in the area um, – first of all, had had taken damage from the storm, but we're also really feeling like, okay, we're part of this community. We need to somehow put our professional skills into play to help and, and um, you know, be part of this community um, as they're, they're struggling with this. And so what they did was as quickly as possible, they got, you know, kind of uh, – rapid response funding sources and that kind of thing and, and tried to get out into the communities as quickly as possible to start getting a sense of what was going on in terms of flooding, in terms of mold, in terms of um, exposure to chemicals. You may remember with that storm, there was a lot of concern that there was um, there were some very contaminated, polluted sites that they were at risk mm-hmm. of flooding and that that flood water could then contain a lot of nasty chemicals. Um, and so they very quickly mobilized to try to get out there. And I think it's just... Um, a reality check about the pace of science that two years later, those uh, scientists all got together earlier this summer to talk about where they are with their research. And unfortunately, where they are with their research is they don't have a lot of findings yet that, first of all, they needed to continue collecting data, not just that once, you know, two weeks or a month or two months after the storm, but kind of over time to see how things progressed. Um, But one of the biggest findings that they do have in hand at this point is that one of the biggest health effects is not to diminish the chemical exposures or the mold exposures, but the really notable, really widespread health impact is psychological trauma and dealing with the trauma of of flooding, of, um, you know, large numbers of, of deaths and, and casualties, of people being missing, of being displaced from your home, that the trauma of that um, is is one of the clearest, the mental health impacts are one of the, the clearest impacts of that storm. I can't even imagine. You lose your home and you lose your everything neighborhood you've and got. you lose... Yeah, I, I just and friends and and friends and people relocate and everything is upheaval. And not to you know, I'm I'm usually so full of good news, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I again, we're we're getting into my personal opinion realm here. But this is something I've become really interested in looking at and reporting on because I think it's an aspect of climate change that we haven't been facing up to. We've been so stuck on. Is it happening? Isn't it happening? How bad is it going to be in a, you know, like, let's get the nuts and bolts and the, the you know, physical science right that we haven't been thinking about, okay, well, if sea level rises two feet or six feet or 10 feet, there are going to be physical effects on our infrastructure. And there are also going to be really wide ranging social and psychological impacts of that that we're not grappling with at all. How tied to your location is your identity, how, how tied to your neighborhood is your mental health, and what happens when all of that gets rearranged by climate change. Imagine, now, speak- Jim, when you're not just a block from uh, Starbucks or a nice <laughs> swish coffee you shop. You know, speaking of psychological impacts, though, it, Marjorie and I had a lot of discussions it, it, in early in the Trump administration when Donald Trump was trashing the intelligence community. And I don't know if we had on the radio, but I had a couple of former CIA people on television with me talking about how do you how do careerists 
deal with having their work savage when they've given their whole life to their country, whether it's a Democratic or Republican president. And everybody with whom I spoke, and I think we also talked to uh, Juliet Kayyem about this, who obviously was in the Homeland Security in the federal and state governments, about what it does to morale. When you have Wilbur Ross, uh, the Commerce Secretary, and Noah is is obviously in his jurisdiction, essentially threatening people with firing if they say a critical word of the president's, quote, forecasting abilities, even if it's even if it was fact-based. And then the head of NOAA tried to sort of straddle the line, not trashing Trump, but also praising his people. I mean, the impact on their ability to do their jobs and be committed to their cause and their leader has got to really be destroyed. Yeah, and I think this is um, unfortunately just one really um, public and, and high-profile example of the – situation that a lot of career scientists in the government have been facing for the past few years. I mean, you, you said in your intro something about the sanctity of science, and I was like, is there is there sanctity of science? Um, that That's not the attitude that this administration has brought to science. There's not a lot, uh, it seems, of respect um, for science and science advice for that matter. I mean, you're mentioning Homeland Security and, and other fields where um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of respect for expertise. Um, But I think that's also different than when we get into specifically things like climate science, where, you know, we have seen efforts in the past couple of years um, to rewrite reports so that climate change language is removed from it. Yeah, but you notice, as Marjorie says every day, Governor Scott wouldn't allow climate change to be mentioned. But Senator Scott has had a bit of a conversion. He's not quite... (laughs) He's not quite there yet. Can get federal money now on uh, human causing, <laughs> uh, but he is uh, coming so around. So maybe that's the... that's cause for hope. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, you know it is it is very difficult, and it it puts scientists in a position where what they would like to be able to do is to do their science and provide the best possible information in the interest. I mean, the, the government scientists that I know and I've talked to anyway, like they they've gone that route. They are doing their science in the government setting because they wanted to provide the best possible information to the American public for whatever purpose, whether it's fisheries management or, you know, climate change and, and safety and, and, they don't and get weather on television. forecasting. They don't get the glory. Right. Um, they're, they're not doing it necessarily because they have a political agenda to push. Um, and so it, it is really hard. And yet at the same time, I've also had some conversations over the past week um, with Folks who work at NOAA, not necessarily weather forecasters, not directly involved in um, this past week's events, but just saying, you know, at the same time, you do have to develop a little bit of a thick skin to the back and forth of administrations when you are a scientist in the government, you know, making this your career, understanding that, you know, your whole field of research may become more or less important depending on the political agendas of, of a government. And I'm not saying that excuses, um, you know, possibly trying to fake or change scientific data. Um, but, but more I, or less important, Heather, is very different from being dismissed and discredited. Would you not agree? Right. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Okay. I think there, there are degrees of this that are very much different. Um, and, you know, I think it was a, an interesting point um, that the acting chief scientist made in his um, letter that was made public to NOAA employees saying, okay, I'm going to bring the full power of my office as acting uh, chief scientist to ha- to launch um, an investigation under our scientific integrity policies. And 
I think it was actually he was the one who made the point or, or um, someone in writing about that made the point that, you know, those policies didn't always exist. They don't exist um, uniformly across the entire government. And they didn't spring up in the past two years. They're not there as a defense against the Trump administration. They're there because we have seen violations of scientific integrity in past administrations, both Republican and Democratic. And, and so these rules have come about. So I think it is it. I'm like I said, I'm not saying that there's nothing wrong with what's going on. I'm definitely not saying that. But I think it's important to keep it in perspective that this is certainly not the first time that the integrity of government science has has been threatened by politics. Um, according to the Washington Post, back in 1987, uh, Andrew Wheeler, who's now the head of the EPA, wrote a column when he was a cub reporter for his college newspaper calling for decreased animal testing. I'm a little skeptical of him because he's a coal lobbyist, or he was a coal lobbyist. He's now heading up the EPA. But his column in, high, in the college paper said that we should no longer uh, be testing animals for um, science and medicine and so forth. And I don't know, as much as I'm suspicious of him, is he right? Should we be ending? Oh, the way, you got to update the story. Well, he's now <laughs> demanding that we reduce animal testing dramatically um, to assess the dangers of chemicals and all these things as the EPA administrator. Is he right? Well, um, that's a, a tough question. And this this whole issue brings, I mean, some very strange bedfellows, right, where you've got um, major chemical industry players uh, allied with PETA um, in saying, yes, we should test less on animals. Um, and so I think that has raised, you're not the only one who's skeptical about this, saying, okay, yes, I, I don't think there are any scientists who, well, maybe there are, I shouldn't speak for all scientists, right? But well, let's just say that the scientists that I know and have spoken to who use animals in animal testing are not... Um, just kind of like, hey, let's use more animals, right? They would absolutely agree that we should limit our use of animals for chemical testing to the minimum that we can to get the information that we need, right? I, I, hopefully that's something we could all agree on. Um, the question here, though, is can we actually eliminate it and still get the information that we need in order to know whether or not chemicals are safe? And what EPA Administrator Wheeler is saying is we should be able to, using just not whole animals, but cells that grow in dishes in a lab, um, use those and use computer models to understand whether or not a chemical will be toxic. And uh, a lot of scientists who do this kind of work have spoken up and said, that's not realistic. We won't actually be able to get the information we need because we won't be able to, we don't understand the human body or any animal's body well enough yet to fully predict when a chemical goes into the brain or into the liver or into the kidney, um, how different those interactions might be, or for that matter, whether a chemical might be modified in the liver and then have a different effect in the brain. And if we're only looking at disassociated cells in a dish, we're never going to get those complex interactions within the body. We're never going to know about them. And so essentially, we're going to be turning people into guinea pigs. And so the, the concern here is that by limiting animal research, we will simply end up in a situation where we don't have the information to know if a chemical is safe or not. Um, so this is definitely a move where, you know, on the surface to say we should minimize animal testing, yes, um, but to say that we are ready to eliminate it, um, there's there's a lot of pushback from the science community about whether or not we're, you know, ready to do that. 
Heather, nice to see you. Yeah, thank you yeah, very thank much, you. Heather. Heather Goldstone is WGBA science correspondent. She joins us regularly. She's an expert in ocean science and host of Living Lab Radio, which you can catch Sundays at noon. It's a great show, by the way, Living thank Lab you. Radio, right here at noon. Sounds like she's surprised. Yeah, I just want to say that because I catch it a lot, and so I just wanted to let Heather know it's on 89.7. Uh, on Sundays at noon and Mondays at 9 o'clock and 7 p.m. It's on WCAI 90. Heather, thank you very much. Up next, Great to see you. we are opening the lines and asking you about the Patriots' big fumble. Why are they sidestepping the sexual accusations against Antonio Brown? That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And the Patriot Way is used to describe the Pats' extraordinary levels of winning, a team-first culture, and accountability. But is the Patriot Way also about getting away with bad behavior? And in the case of Antonio Brown, that might include rape and sexual assault. Yesterday, we learned of these accusations in a civil suit. Today, Brown showed up at practice. He may even play on Sunday. Meanwhile, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady are sidestepping the issue. So what are we left to think? Did they know about this before they signed Brown? Do they not care? Should we care? The number is 877-301-8970. And obviously it is all complicated by the travails that Robert Kraft went through earlier this year. If you missed this yesterday, uh, I have to say I want to do a shout out to the fact that the sports reporters really did their job, which they ordinarily do not do with Bill Belichick. He treats them like dogs, and they allow themselves to be treated like dogs. Yesterday was not the case. To his credit, he opened by saying on Antonio's situation, this is Belichick, both uh, he and his representatives have made statement. I'm not going to be expanding on it, that they are what they are. We've looked into the situation. We take it seriously. I'm sure there are questions I'm not going to be entering into the discussion. Were you aware of the lawsuit when you signed Antonio Brown? I'm not going to be expanding on the statements that have already been given, he says. Don't you think the fans deserve to hear a little bit more from you? When we know more, we'll say more. On such a major development that could impact the team? Yeah, I just said that. And here's a little bit more from Belichick yesterday and the quarterback of the team, the greatest of all time, Tom Brady. Can you tell us at all what Antonio Brown has said to you? Yeah, I mean, I'm done with that, okay? Anything done, else done in Miami? Done, done with it in what way, sir? Any other questions? Can you explain what you mean when you're done with it? I mean, we're just trying to find out if he said anything to you about his position and about the allegations. Yeah, I just answered that question. Well, actually, you didn't. Actually, I did. Do you have any comment at all on the Antonio Brown allegations that are out there? No. Not a word to say? Didn't I just answer that? Things that don't involve me, don't involve me. I'll tell you, uh, uh, <laughs> Chuck Todd, uh, how would you describe Chuck Todd's position on this issue uh, earlier today? Marguerite? Well, I think he had a very interesting position. He, Chuck Todd said that, uh, that Roger Goodell uh, has failed to discipline Robert Kraft in any way, so that he probably won't be disciplining uh, this, this wide receiver since he hasn't disciplined Robert Kraft. And by the way, for the uh, league to discipline a player or an owner, you do not need to be convicted of any criminal wrongdoing. 
they are able to do that. But yeah, I, I have to say my position on this, and we're going to take your calls for a few minutes at 877-301-8970. I know it's not a public agency, but it's got a public trust. And I would argue that the fact that they will not answer a question as to whether or not they knew. And by the way, his agent, who's very close to the Patriots, his agent, Drew Rosenhaus, said that he and the player had an inkling that this was coming. So does it strain credibility to suggest that they never disclose that to the Patriots? And do you not feel, and I assume most of you are Patriots fans, but at minimum you live in this community, virtually all of you, do you not feel the public is entitled to know if the leadership of the team knew that uh, litigation was about to be filed against their new player suggesting he had committed sexual assault rape, which, by the way, has not been proven. They're just allegations in a civil litigation. But I would like to know if the team decided that was they knew it and it wasn't important enough to dissuade them from the signing or that they didn't know it, and then we can just focus on the player. 877-301-8970. One more time, for whoever that reporter was or those reporters who actually did what reporters should do is demand answers of a guy who is a public figure, Bill Belichick, uh, uh, all I can say is uh, well done. It was perfect. But let me go back to my theme of the week. I know it is. Should, I know it is. Uh, I, I think, okay, uh, I, I get everything you're saying about the Patriots, but let's look at us, those of us here in Boston. Um, we had this opening, grand opening ceremony. I, I couldn't watch it on TV. I thought you were going to be able to see it on TV. Sunday night, yep. Sunday night before the Patriots began their season because they won the Super Bowl. And Robert Kraft was there. And Robert Kraft was charged with uh, soliciting prostitution back in February. And the charges have since been uh, dropped. And Robert Kraft apologized to his family and his friends and his coworkers. He never apologized to the women that mm-hmm. were uh, in that Orchard Day Spa, whatever it was called down there yeah, in, in Florida. And um, he and the other men involved were initially charged with misdemeanors. Um, These women were charged with felonies. Uh, They were charged with um, uh, money laundering, and they were charged with racketeering and and prostitution and receiving support from the proceeds of prostitution. The woman that allegedly was involved with Robert Kraft, she had 43,000 seized from her safety deposit box. The other woman that was there uh, had her uh, accounts frozen or 2,900 bucks from her own bank accounts, and they face up to 20 years in prison. We don't know what's, we haven't had, uh, we don't know what's going to happen in all these cases, but the point is that um, we in Boston don't seem to think it's a problem that there was that Robert Kraft, who is a wealthy man who did these things and and uh, left these women in such terrible situations and didn't apologize, that we can just get stand up there and cheer for him like nothing ever happened. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Not much time, but we'd love to take some quick thoughts from you all. Jack in a car. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Good afternoon. Um, I guess my first comment is if you, you know, you sign somebody like Antonio Brown, you know, you suffer the consequences. But it would look really bad if the Patriots did know something about this possibility. We don't know that, I don't think, at this point. But my general. No, though, comment, Jack, excuse me. The reason we don't know it is because they refused to answer the question. Bill Belichick knows okay. it, and he just okay. wouldn't answer the question. Right. Instead, he just okay. abused the reporters. Okay. But go ahead. All right. Fair enough. Okay. In general. And here's my real point. The NFL is probably doing a lot better than they were doing on this front earlier on. 
the question is, you know, is, is there a double standard for an NFL athlete when allegations like this surface? If somebody in any other kind of job, you know, were in this situation and denied this and they're doing an investigation, would there be any push to take any action and fire somebody before the proceedings played out? I think in many cases, if you, if you were – well, it depends, but I think you might be put on a leave pending the outcome of the investigation, I think. It depends on what job you're in, but I think that's true. I think one of the things we've talked about forever is that there's uh, been much more tolerance for really talented athletes from the time they're in high school, hasn't there, in high school and college? We all know that Aaron Hernandez got in a lot of trouble when he was in college, and the police and everybody else looked the other way because he was a big star for the Florida team, so – by the way, my position on this, Jack, just so it's clear, I'm not suggesting there be sanctions at this stage. I'm suggesting there should be transparency. That's all. Uh, the accusations are really serious, and the and he should be given his day in court or whatever comes before it. I have no problem with that. Uh, the NFL allegedly is going to do an investigation. I not don't give much hope that they will do a credible investigation. They haven't in many other cases, and they've covered up things like concussions and all that sort of stuff. But at minimum, it seems to me in a situation like this, the public is entitled to honest, full answers based on what they know. Not a judgment on the guilt of the player, but a the truth about whether or not the team knew. That's all I'm saying. Jack, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Let's go out to Charlton where Alan's on the phone. Alan, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey, uh, the last uh, call, I kind of addressed some of my points that um, basically in most cases we wouldn't be trying to rush to judgment, talking about people being suspended or being fined or anything else when there's just allegations in a, especially in a civil case. Mm -hmm. Civil cases are usually preceded by criminal cases and then they come after money after the convictions. But this is no conviction. This is a pure civil case. Somebody come out, you know, and should I get money? Um, Kraft, again, like. I think Marge was saying that, you know, Kraft didn't get any kind of sanctions. He also wasn't found guilty of anything. I, I mean, neither by the NFL or by, particularly by the court, which is really the important thing. No, actually, uh, it's well, not an important thing because it's not necessary to be disciplined by the league, even if you have been, forget, uh, uh, not been convicted. You don't even need to be charged with a crime. Uh, to be uh, uh, sanctioned by the league. But They've as you know, he was pulled over by the times. cops twice uh, coming out of this place. So he was there, obviously. And and I, I guess the thing is, you know, these women's lives have been absolutely ruined. You don't, uh, I don't think you want to grow up to want to become a prostitute in a massage parlor. I think these women were kind of in desperate straits, and they've now lost their livelihood. They're banned from working in massage parlors and spa establishments. This may have, there may have been some change in this, but as based on the la- latest reporting, we know that's her situation. So I just find it odd that there doesn't seem to be. Um, I mean, maybe he could have skipped this opening ceremony this year, Alan. Well, you're looking for accountability. I'm looking for honesty. Alan, thank you very much for the call. Tony and Worcester, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi. Hello, Tony. You're looking for honesty, are you? <laughs> I know. Well, I guess that I, I should have realized what I would get myself okay. into. Go ahead. You think we're naive, uh, Tony? Go ahead, Tony. Oh, no, not at all. No. Um, you know, I, I work in the construction industry, and I'm sorry, I'm getting a feedback. Keep talking. We We're fine on this end. Go ahead. We can hear you. Um, so. <laughs> We're going to put you on hold. We'll get back to you in a second. Jack in the car. You're next on no, Boston no, Public no. Radio. Hi, Jack. Um, you know, I, I work in the 
This is working well. Jack, you got to turn your radio down if you that's want to talk not, to us. That's Tony again. No, it is not. It is actually Jack oh, listening to Tony, who's on oh, delay on okay. the... Uh, okay, we'll put you on hold, too. <laughs> you know, is it, is it a lot to ask for them to just answer the question? Do you think that... I mean, well, your demand is much higher than mine. I just want a leader of the team, whether it's Bob Kraft or his son, or the coach of the team, who obviously knows... Were you aware that this thing was pending? It is fine to say yes, and he, is, he, he has been uh, found liable of nothing. There's just litigation. We're going to let it play out. The NFL will do its investigation. I'm not suggesting that they take action based upon the mere filing of a civil lawsuit. But I, I can't believe that the average fan or person in this community doesn't think that they'd like to know that the highest profile and most successful team maybe ever, well, other than the Celtics from years ago, in this region. Well, I guess my point is, why do you expect that when the guy that owns the team um, seems to be fairly shameless about this and uh, has not apologized to these women and talks about how, you know, when he did apologize. I think because because of the troubles he's had, Marjorie, I would have naively assumed that they would have bent over backwards to uh, have vetted this guy and been transparent about the vetting, specifically because of the issue that you're saying suggests to you otherwise. I mean, well, my was- understanding was Myra Kraft, who's, who, di- who was a wonderful woman who died in 2011, who prevented the guy who was had domestic violence problem, Christian Peter, from coming to the team. That's correct, before, from Nebraska. He, before he but even Bob got Kraft there. has done a lot of great things, too. I'm with you on this thing. I think he should do far more. If you remember at the time, my position was, in addition to the apology to the women, he should pay their legal fees. I mean, to, he can afford it. They probably can't. Uh, that would have been a, well, according a gesture. to a television station uh, in Florida, one of those women was in was in jail right through May. May at least because yeah, she I couldn't afford to get I out. Know that. I know. It. Let's try Tony in Worcester one more time. Hi, Tony. Hey, that's better. Good. Uh, yeah. Hey. Um, yeah. I work in the construction industry, and um, a lot of my colleagues, we all get drug tested all the time, and uh, a lot, you know, and it's a stressful job. We we do stressful things all day long, and. You know, we want to come home and smoke a joint or, you know, relax a little bit. We can't do that because if we get drug tested and we fail, we we get canned, you know, mm-hmm. and there's no due process. There's, the, the idea of due process in this country is a myth. You know, it, it's it's just ridiculous. So how does that – we only have 30 that. seconds. How does that relate to this yeah. case? Well, because there's – due process is, uh, is – is, you're asking for too much. You're asking for way too much, and it's pick and choose, you know, the you the, the NFL is selective in who they want to yes, hammer and who they want to let off, you know, and they can do that. That's their right. And I don't think it's right, but that's the way it is because our society is acquiesced to these. People. Well, the way that they the way that what is right changes is when people who pay the bills, us, make a demand. Tony, for the record, thanks I think it's call. outrageous that with marijuana legal in Massachusetts, you should have got drug tested unless you're running some dangerous equipment Heavy that could put other people or something. I agree with you. at risk. How about but, people who've lost their, lost their job, who credibly suggested that they hadn't used marijuana that stays in your system for quite a while? In any case, thanks for the calls. We're done. Thanks for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can keep up with us 24-7, but we have our podcast on iTunes. Tomorrow we're going to be at the Boston Public Library, and Mayor Marty Walsh is going to be there to take our questions and your calls. Our crew, we want to thank Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. What's on television, Jim? Well, Stephanie Lydon's got a great package on electric uh, cars. 
and uh, rebates designed to get more Massachusetts residents to buy them and the fact that it's about to end. We're going to talk about that. I'm going to talk a little bit about the vaping thing we discussed earlier, and then we will do with a couple of people who have been deeply involved in campaigns for years, one of whom ran the Democratic National Convention, one of whom has worked for both Biden and Warren. We'll talk about what to expect tonight and what to expect in the days and weeks ahead in this race to oppose Donald Trump. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browdy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune again tomorrow or visit us at the Boston Public Library. Meanwhile, have a great afternoon.